Hello and welcome to episode 40 of The Game Pit. My name's Sean and this is our big roundup of 2014. Hey, my name's Ronan. Yeah, we're going to be looking back at 2014 with the help of some of our contributors. We're all going to be giving our views on the best and worst of the year, the best games that came out, the best games that were new to Sean and I and our contributors, best expansion, best game that came out of the dust we haven't played for a while, and also what we're looking forward to most in 2015. And you can catch us on the Dice Tower Network along with all manner of wonderful podcasts. The Dice Tower is actually making a new website as we speak, so look forward to that. We are also on 2d6.org along with a whole host of gaming goodness. Now, Ronan has news of something very special. So, for the first time ever, we have got a competition running in this episode. It's going to run through till the end of February. You have got a chance to win a copy of the base game of Hoyuk which came out at Essen 2014, and we previewed in one of our preview shows. And this has been kindly provided by the Mage Company. Now, the Mage Company have got a Kickstarter campaign running at the moment until the 10th of February, and that is for Hoyuk Anatolia, which is an expansion to Hoyuk. So... Maybe you'll win the competition. Well, there's your chance to get the expansion. And this one is, very importantly to Sean and I, close to our hearts, EU-friendly, and it ships for free to customers in the EU. It's not always easy to find those. Listen in, and a bit later, we're going to be giving out the question for our Hoyuk competition. So we're going to start off on a negative note and hope to do an upswing from here. Sean and I are going to be giving up our biggest disappointment of 2014. This doesn't necessarily mean the worst game we played because it's not that difficult to make a truly, truly terrible game. To be our biggest disappointment, it has to be a game that we had a lot of hope for and then we were let down in the playing of it. So Sean, I don't think your choice is going to be much of a surprise to anyone who's been listening recently. Kick us off. No, Ronan, uh, you're absolutely right. I think everyone who listened to our post-Essen roundup will know all about this one because we discussed it at length with Lloyd and Poria. So my biggest disappointment is Imperial Settlers from Portal Games. It was a game that I, as I said, I had really high hopes pre-Essen, and I still feel that it has the bones of a great game, but the meat of the game just isn't there at all. So what was wrong with the game? Well, For me, the iconography was just too small, and that just led to a complete lack of understanding and knowledge of what your opponent was doing, unless you constantly just get up and walk around the table to investigate, or indeed challenge them to explain every single action and show how they're doing it, and that's just going to add time and just destroy this game further. In addition, there was this random card draw that could just leave you with nothing to do on your turn if you get the wrong set of cards or, as Ronan found out, had the cheek to make a good start and then just got picked apart and then just couldn't get his game going again. It's, as I said, a game I really like the look of and it just really disappointed me, Ronan. We spoke about it at length in our big Essen review with Priya and Lloyd. It's, It's... Same component issues as you discussed and also similar to my my choice is going to be in a second. You can't read those cards across the table without knowing what's on every card in play. You really have no idea. But to be honest, it's really difficult to plan anyway as to what's going to happen because people have got the ability to take stuff away from you and there's not a lot you can do about it and it becomes really 
incredibly frustrating. Yeah, to take that is too much. Like you said, the random in the card draw, if it falls for you early, you're going to make a real great start. And then it's down to people having to bash you, not through good play, but just through, again, the fact they've drawn certain cards. All of the trappings of a good game. It looks like a good game. Cards combo, resources move, points are scored, but it hasn't got the heart. It's just not there. It's a really frustrating, boring, poorly paced, and I'm sorry, Porter, but poorly made game. Okay, strong, strong words. Ronan, have you got any more strong words for your choice? Uh, yes, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> my biggest disappointment, and this was one of my big hopes for the year in our last year-end review for 2013, and it was Galactic Strike Force. Again, anyone who listens will know I'm a big fan of Sentinels of the Multiverse. This is from Greater Than Games and Christopher Bedell, the team behind Sentinels of the Multiverse, and I was hoping that this was a game that was going to build on the system in Sentinel to take it to a new theme in a science fiction setting there are invaders coming to a galaxy and all that's left are sort of the scum and villainy if you like the bounty hunters and the thieves and they've got to get together and they've got to do something we're all going to get annihilated lots of card play different phases cards interacting with each other wow so I had so much to say about this game I thought I'd try and structure it the way Sean does in some of his reviews I'll start from the very beginning the rule book it's awful it just does not do what it needs to do. It doesn't teach you how to play the game. It doesn't even contain all the rules. They can't even claim that they ran out of space because there's huge waste of space on it. And then, as with Sentinels, there's gonna be a lot of these rules are going to be on the cards, but then the cards are vague. And you read them and you're like, I don't know what that means. And there's nothing to refer to back in the rule book. And it's very difficult to get to know just what the rules are never mind going on from there trying to play the game well so we go on to the the actual production of the game and the graphic design is awful you need to know what's on every card in this game to make your decisions and they are covered in tiny text there's lots of cards with bold and patterned backgrounds with white text on them which is really difficult on the eye incredibly difficult to read at any distance and they do not do the job they need to do at least in sentinels cards tend to operate on a particular phase if it's this hero's turn those are the cards that are going to come into play yeah they affect things here and there but they don't actually action the cards in Galactic Strike Force can operate in multiple phases so every phase of the game you have to go through and see which of these has got a G on them Okay, which of these has got an S on them? And it's not even written clearly. It's written, all this white text, oh, it's very, very difficult. I know people have been using different coloured markers or cubes on each card to mark out this triggers then, this triggers then, this triggers then. That's a bad, bad thing when people need to add components just to make your game playable. So the gameplay itself, it's a co-op and the difficulty is completely random. Okay, and random according to the setup, which of the scenarios you're fighting, so which of the main enemies you're fighting, and then which ships you've chosen to fight that enemy. That it can be literally impossible to win. Then the next problem is you can get into huge long loops where you're neither winning nor losing. And you're just playing, and I'm not joking, for two or three hours, you're not getting any closer to winning, and the game can't beat you. That's a broken cooperative game. And then in the games that you can win, there's a fulcrum of difficulty. It's difficult for a while, and then there's a turn. If you survive to that point, it differs according to the scenario again, but there's a point at which you get there, and then you crack it, and then you know you're going to win. 
There's no tension. It's just survive those first couple of turns. Now you know you're going to get more and more and more powerful. You're going to cascade through and win the game. If you're in a setup that you can possibly win. So frustrating. Just, just awful. Maybe 15% of the possible setups are actually a decent game that's worth playing. If you took away the component and rules issues and just went with the mechanisms, do they work? In the vast majority of setups, they do not work at all. It's incredibly fiddly. You have to play with exactly a certain number of ships, otherwise it doesn't work. The first mission is awful that it's hard to learn the game with. It's almost impossible to lose, but it's one of those that you can just sit there and not be winning and not losing and just be going through the motions going, this game is going nowhere. A terrible first mission for them to choose. A mistake that games companies make, we've discussed it before, but this is awful here. No arc, no fun, terrible components. One of literally, not just a disappointment, one of the worst games I've ever tried to play. Galactic Strike Force. So, Ronan, I heard an awful lot of the use of the word awful. As an owner of this game, and having yet to play it, I'm kind of just trying to scrape some good out of this. Now, if it did address some of the annoying factors, like the small text on the cards, the large amount of bookkeeping, the massive amount of space that it seems to take up, it got the arc somewhat right where you could actually follow it through and not get into an endless loop of not knowing where you're going, adjusted some of those, or indeed all of them, would it make it a barely playable game? So if it was a completely different game, it'd be <laughs> think about what you just said we had to change. Yeah. That's that's an awful lot. Change the components, change the rules, change what else? I think that's, you know, change the theme? The bookkeeping. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you were going to play it, possibly go on BGG if you're determined to play it and find out what ships to play against what scenario. And then there's a possibility of finding some fun Possibly. There's so many setups are just too easy. So many are just too hard and so many are a loop that it's just a minefield. If you're determined to give it a go, cheat, find the setups that work and give it a go from there. And then at least you can judge it with the broken, I'm going to term them broken setups removed. And then you can judge it on the other parts, which I've got problems with, like the components, like the, the sort of arc to it where it's difficult, 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 boom, incredibly easy. Those other things, see, see how bad those issues are for you. Because if you get a bad setup, it is just awful. So what you're saying is, without these fixes from Board Game Geek or the internet, it's a very awful game. But if you manage to get these fixes in place, it's just quite awful. Without the fixes, it's not a game. <laughs> With the fixes, judge for yourself, but in my opinion, still pretty, pretty bad. Okay, alright. <laughs> let's let's move on. That could be the only segment the game pit ever does where Imperial Settlers comes out way ahead. <laughs> so one of the first contributors to join us in this episode is our friend Chris Marling. Chris is the designer of Empire Engine, which came out in 2014, so it's been a big year for him. He also has a blog, which he's going to tell you all about. Hey, Chris, and welcome to the Game Pit. Hey, thanks very much for having me on, and good to be here. 
And do you want to tell us all about your blog and tell us what you write about and why and what's the driving force behind it, where people can find it? Absolutely, yeah. It's just on WordPress. So if you Google Go Play Listen, you should find it there. I started it out originally writing about all kinds of things, you know, just sort of whatever came to my mind, whether it was about music or traveling or board games. But slowly my board game obsession has grown to the point where pretty much everything I write is about board games now. And I do reviews, I talk about board game journalism, and I talk about board game design. So pretty much the whole spectrum. And talking about board game design, how's it been with Empire Engine coming out? It's been super exciting in a nerdy way. Uh, I've, had, I've been having a great time. You know, it's, it's, it's an odd thing going from designing as a bit of a giggle because some people were doing it down the pub to designing an actual game you were quite proud of and then putting it in front of a publisher and them actually taking it on you know, in the space of a year, it was a pretty a bit of a roller coaster ride. I mean, it's it's never going to make us rich, but, you know, it's been a fantastic experience. Oh, I think it surprised a few of us that EG took it on, Chris. Yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your generous comments, sir. So, your, free, your free copy uh, is no longer in the post. <laughs> I think we should point out to everyone that, of course, us and all contributors chose Empire Engine as game of 2014, but due to neutrality, we had to exclude it. So you may hear some other choices. Well, that was it. I mean, I was I was going to choose it myself, but I figured, well, if you you guys are going to talk about it, you know, there's only so much of this show we can dedicate to that one game. So there's a bit of a spoiler for you. I'm, <laughs> I'm not choosing Empire Engine. Bless you. Right. So what have you chosen? Do you want to tell us which game you were looking forward to in 2014, but ended up being your biggest disappointment? I don't think this is going to be a controversial pick, having listened to some recent episodes, because I'm going to go with Imperial Settlers from Portal Games, designed by Ignacy Trezicek. The thing for me was it was totally my kind of game on paper. I love Civ-style card games. I love engine building. It looked really nice, the cartoon artwork and everything. I just couldn't wait to have a game of it. And then I played it, and oh my, what a disappointment. So what exactly was wrong with it for you, Chris? For me, there were two main things. Firstly, it's always hard to get a game that's really good where you've got asymmetric sort of powers. But this game tends to hinge on three main cards, one each for the... Well, when we played a three-player game, there was one major card for each of the different factions. And there's a massive stack of cards. You've got no idea when you're going to get it. And the game basically hinged on who got their card at what point. So that was a big issue. And I can't believe that didn't come up more when they were testing it. But worse than that was the rest of the game you're doing loads of little mini actions, but they're really boring. You just got loads of sort of micro moves. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to put this here and that creates one of this and that goes over there. And it's the kind of thing you hear leveled at sort of other bigger Euro designers. And I think it's a fair comment. You know, there are certain games like Aura at Labora where, you know, people really criticize that game for, oh, you're just turning things into other things. But for some reason, this one, I don't know, maybe it's because it's sort of cartoon graphics. This one's accepted even though it's exactly the same thing i was just i was bored out of my mind and it was totally un- but other than that it was great we're pretty much singing from the same hymn book on this one and it was one of my biggest disappointments of the year as well are there any adjustments that you would make to the game to make it a better game and experience overall you know to be honest i actually don't think there is i just think there's too much there's just too much balance there's just too many boring things no no is a simple answer i think there's too much wrong with it so i just walked away no. 
Well, yeah, we've given our opinion about Imperial Settlers here and elsewhere in the show. It's it's made a real bad impression around several members of our gaming group. And uh, there are big fans of Imperial Settlers out there. So I guess it's one of those games we have to say to people, maybe give it a try. Because it's got its fans, it's got an expansion out already, it's doing well. I can't understand it. I don't think these guys can understand it. But there you go. I think we'll move on to more positive notes. Sean, lead us forward. Absolutely. Let's move on. So... What was your favourite expansion that was published in 2014, Chris? Well, before I do this, I just have to quickly say that I'm not a massive fan of expansions for games. I'm, I'm, I've been a real bad kind of, you know, sort of cult of the new guy for a few years now. And it means that I've got quite a big collection of games I don't play. I don't play them that often. So I never really feel the need to add expansions because I don't play games often enough. But one where I thought it really, really was a good expansion that came out this year was the Gossip expansion for CV, which is uh, from Grana and it's designed by Philip Miewinski. So CV is a Yahtzee style push your luck game where you, it adds cards into the mix. The game sort of each player is going to be living out a life of a person through the dice. So the dice have got sort of different sides on them. So instead of numbers, you've got symbols and they represent things like relationships, money, knowledge. Also, good luck and bad luck. And you roll these, you get two re-rolls, the same as Yahtzee. And what you're trying to do is match the symbols to a set of cards that are on a tableau. And the ones you pick up will then give you bonuses. So to give you an example, there's one of the relationship cards is twins. So as you move into the middle part of your life, you start with your youth, go through middle age, go into your old age. So if you get the twins card, you'll need to roll the relationship, two money symbols and a happiness symbol. If you roll those, you then get the twins card that sits in front of you. And for the rest of the game, you will lose two money every round, but you will gain two happiness. So it's really thematic. It's really funny. It tells a really nice story as it goes along. And I've just been thoroughly enamored. What gossip has added to it is two totally new sets of cards, which is, you know, any game like this where it relies on cards and telling a story and humor. Anything that can, you know, just add a bit more variety is exactly what it needed. I, th- I think that one of the criticisms aimed at CV was that there wasn't enough variety between plays. Maybe half a dozen times in, you might have seen everything in the game. And then one of the selling points to bring that gossip was the addition of fake cards and what have you to bring that variety. But it turns out there wasn't many of them. There's only about a dozen fake cards in there. Does it change up the game enough? Does it bring enough variety in between plays? And did they put enough of these cards in the expansion, Chris? Um, I guess there's two answers. I think that if you didn't like CV initially, or if you're the kind of player that gets bored of that kind of game very quickly, then I don't think this is going to bring enough to change your mind. There is very few fake cards in there, but what they do is they're in there really to mitigate some of the bad luck you can have. So you've got the the happy face and sad face sides of the die. If you If you rolled two happy faces, not three they're useless. If you roll a certain amount of bad luck, you can't do anything about it. And what the fake cards did was made it interesting, even if you only rolled one or two. But no, they don't add enough variety in terms of bringing people back into the fold, I wouldn't think. Gossip cards do add a bit more of a gamely edge to it, because those ones are cards you can buy, but you can actually give them to other players, and it gives them negative effects. So that adds a nice little element as well. So it can make it more gamely. But I don't know if you're a fan of it, it's a must buy, I think. Yeah, for me, Chris, I, 
went to the Essen 2013 fair and obviously this was released around that time and it's just one that I didn't pick up on at all because with that sea of games in Essen you've got kind of got to be quite stringent in what you rule out and I think the theme probably just didn't appeal to me but having read your review on Board Game Geek doing my research I happened across your your little review and it actually really does interest me. It seems quite a robust game for a lot of game gamer types. What do you think? Yeah, I really do think so. There's a lot of games where if you played them every day or every week, then you would get bored of them quickly. And I think this is probably one of them. So if you're someone who's got a very small collection of games, you like to play those games a lot, then this might not be the best choice for you. But if you've got quite a lot of varied groups, quite a lot of people that, you know, don't always want a heavy game or just don't like heavy games, and you're the sort of person that's quite happy to play a game once a month, once every few weeks, then I think this is a fantastic addition to a collection. It really is good. Brilliant. Roland, do you want to lead us into the next section? Well, Chris just admitted that he's very much a member of the cult of the new, but I believe sometimes he plays games that haven't come out in the last three weeks. What was the best game that was new to you this year, Chris, that wasn't published in 2014? The highlight for me this year was finally getting around to playing Nagador, which is a Matt Gertz game from his own publishing house, I think, P.D. Verlag. It's one of his Rondale games, and for me, it's probably the best of the Rondale games that I've played. I was turned on to it because I'd seen a lot of people saying it was his best game, so I thought, well, I've got to try it sooner or later. And, yep, I absolutely loved it. So you mentioned the Rondel games there um, from the series that Matt Gertz... What what was different about this one and what made it unique from the other ones you've played? The the first one I got was um, Hamburgum, which I just managed to get very cheaply, having not heard too much about him at all at the time. And I just sort of fell in love with the with the idea of how it works. It's It's... I mean, if people don't like games where you're constantly pulling your hair out because you can't do what you want to do, then you need to avoid these games like the plague. Because essentially what you have is you have a rondel which has eight actions on it, and you're moving around it clockwise, but you can only move up to three spaces around the outside on each one of your moves. If you want to move any further, you really have to pay through the nose. Depending on the game, you might have to pay money, which will be very tight, or you might actually have to pay victory points to move further. So you're always trying to kind of line yourself up for these great combos. And Hamburgum was a really a really nice game, really interesting game where you're kind of building these churches. But the Rondell worked really nicely and really sucked me in. But the actual action on the board, while it was interesting, the board didn't really seem to do very much. You know, there were kind of you had to sort of move in a certain path at early part of the game. But to be honest, if you'd taken the board away, the game would have probably not been much worse. But what Navigador does is adds a really nice kind of flowing, almost like a race to the game where you're moving from one side of the board through the sea to the far end of the board. And, you know, some people might be trying to race to the end to get there quickly to get points in that way. But other people might just be trading really slowly along the board. So it very much feels as if there's different parts to victory. And while at the same time, you're always keeping an eye on people and like wondering what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it, it just adds another level, I think. Yeah, I think it's a strong choice, mate. Um, your choice of this made me look up, because I have played it, and I played it the month it came out, well, over four years ago, and I haven't oh, wow. played it since. So <laughs> maybe we'll have to get this to the table together one day. What was that Absolutely, about? yeah. What was that about Cult of the New Ronin? 
Move on, move on. Next. <laughs> so next up, Chris, the game that you hadn't played for a while, but suddenly sort of burst out and you really enjoyed it for the first time in ages. What was that? This one for me is uh, a game called For Sale, which is an, I think it's published by Eagle Griffin at the moment, designed by Stefan Dora. I played this 2011, 2012, I think mainly with the sort of London on board crowd introduced me to it. It used to be, you know, it's a fantastic light 20 minute game. You can play, I think it's three to six people, and it's an auction bidding game, very quick, very silly, very fun. Anyone can pick it up in five minutes, and I loved it. But then I stopped going to London on board, and I stopped really playing fillers. So pretty much for the whole of 2013, I, I didn't play that kind of game. But I'm in a new kind of local group now, and I also had a bit of silly gaming over Christmas. And this came out a few times, and it was just so much fun, and it was... You know, it's just fantastic. I'm really glad I bought it when I did, because otherwise, you know, I probably would have forgotten about it. But it just fits in so many occasions. It's a top game. It is a top game. And I think a lot of time people think that a top game has to be a really big game or a long game, lots of components. For sale shows what you can do with minimal mechanisms, minimal components, just letting people interact. I, I really like it. But it is an auction game. And when you just say an auction game to lots of people, they immediately get their back up, they get put off, they don't enjoy auction games because there are some really bad ones out there. There are really bad ways to do auction mechanics like blind bidding where everyone pays, awful things like that. What is it about this game, Chris, that avoids the pitfalls of auctions? What does for sale do right? This is an interesting one. And what I'm almost going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to reverse the issue and go to the end of the game rather than the start. So what I tend to find with this game is almost every time I finish it, whoever wins will sit there pontificating about how clever they were and what they did. And, oh, yeah, well, you see what it was was when I bid that three money on this or whatever. And everyone else is just sitting there looking at it and going, no, you, you were just lucky. And everyone else feels unlucky. And I just don't think that it's a game of skill. And I think if you go into that game and sort of say, look, it's quick, it's chaotic, don't worry about it, do what you like, it doesn't matter. Everyone's going to get something. Everyone's going to win with this amount of cards. And then we're going to do this crazy blind bidding bit at the end. And, you know, you might you might just win. And I think that's the joy of it. The joy is it is a 20-minute game. It is silly. You can feel like you're having a bit of involvement. And when you win, you feel like you should have. But frankly, it's just blind luck. Oh, we need to pay for money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure you can play it well. But, I mean, I've, I've had hilarious. I've had hilarious games where someone paid all of their coins for the highest value card in the first round of a game and then was just given the worst card every round until the end of the first half and still almost won in the second half. <laughs> that's a good play. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think I think that is a, that's a kind of reverse way of answering your question in that it doesn't feel like a bidding game. It just feels like a very light, easy to pick up game it feels yeah. like a game it doesn't feel like an auction game yeah i concur with you on this one chris it's a fantastic game lots of fun and yeah just mindless throw it out there have a laugh and get on with it good choice you boys and your mindless honestly right <laughs> <laughs> we'll take chris back into his comfort zone colder than you what was your favourite game, Chris, published in 2014? Okay, well, this is interesting, because when, uh, when earlier on when I was talking about Imperial Settlers saying the game was right up my alley, and it was a massive disappointment, um, there were actually two games that I went to Essen 
hoping were going to blow my mind. That was one of them. And the other one was my 2014 game of the year, which was Deus, which came from Pearl Games and was designed by Sebastian Dujardin. It's a, another tableau building game. It's a hand management game. It's a Civ game. But for me, everything that Imperial Settlers does wrong, this does right. Instead of having two terrible mechanisms that are, just don't work, this has got two really clever ones that totally do work. So firstly, you're comboing cards, but you're comboing them in an interesting way. The order matters, and you're also limited with those combos. So when you get a really good thing going, you just know in the back of your mind it's not going to be good for the whole game. Basically, you can put five cards out of a type, and once you've put five out of a type, they're finished. You can't put any more of that color out. But while you're putting them out, each time you put another one out of the same color as the first one, it triggers the first one. So you can end up at the end putting five cards out. And when you put that fifth one out, you go card one, card two, card three, card four, card five. All of them could be working together to do some fantastic little engine. But then once it's gone, it's gone. And I absolutely love that. The other thing it does really well is it has a fantastic discard mechanism. So if you're a fan like I am of a game like Race for the Galaxy, one of the biggest issues with it is, you know, you can do an explore, pick up 12 cards and none of them are what you want. And then you're just stuck with a bunch of cards. The great thing about Deus is you pick up a bunch of cards. If you don't like any of them on your next round, you can discard the whole lot. But you, when you discard, you actually get a bonus and the bonus you get is bigger the more cards you discard. So you never feel as if you've had a wasted round. So also it plays out in about an hour and it feels much meatier than that. So. Oh, and there's more, there's multiple ways to victory as well, which is always another great thing. So, again, comparing it to Race for the Galaxy, it's got that thing where you can either go for a kind of militaristic route where you can battle things on the board and end it quickly, or you can try and get these great in-hand card combos going and work for a much bigger score, but it's going to take you a much longer time to get it. So, yeah, those are the main things for me which make it a classic. So I'm going to show my shallow side in that the look of the game really put me off in Essen and I still haven't tried it, Chris. I have been told by more than just yourself that it's a fantastic game and I've girded my loins and I'm definitely going to give it a go soon. But I still have my concerns about that board and the aesthetics of the effect on the gameplay. Did it impact on your play at all? I, I can understand a little bit that people don't like the look of the game. I think the card art isn't amazing. The art on the tiles isn't amazing, but it certainly didn't impact me. Um, I think the only thing that is worth saying about it is there's a, the, the tiles are kind of quirky, and I think that would have really worked if the card art, if the art on those tiles had been better. Because I think I just think it's nice to have something in different shape rather than just boring old hexes again. So I quite like that, but again, because the because there is a there's a little bit too much white space on them, they're not quite brilliant. So you know I do understand why people might walk away if they're totally just looking for for a pretty game. The other thing though, there was um, a slight component issue with the game as well, where they made the cards and one of the colours of the cards was green, but then when they made the discs to go with the cards, so you know you kind of you need your green resources with your green cards. They actually put brown discs in. So this is another thing where if people were already a little bit put off, suddenly they've got slightly disappointing art and components that don't quite match up. 
And I think it just made them look a little bit amateurish. There are reasons for that. Apparently it's to do with colour blindness and there was a kind of a mix up between making the cards and making the pieces. So because apparently, you know, there's a, a brown, green, yellow issue there, on the, a, a red issue, sorry. And I'm, you know, I'm not colour blind, so it's not a problem for me. But apparently it was an issue they tried to sort out and failed. So, yeah, I can kind of understand it. But frankly, a good game's a good game. So get on with it. What's wrong with you? And no more talk about your loins. Thanks very much. <laughs> I'm definitely with him on this, Sean. Get over it. Move on. Um, I'm getting over it. I'm getting over it. Deus, I think I talked about it in the Essen wrap-up. I haven't fallen in love with it, but it's still in, on my shelf. We're going to play it. Sean and I are going to play it. And maybe you'll hear more from it when we come up to sort of a definitive answer. Right, one, one point on that, because um, I, remember, I remember listening to your conversation about that. And I actually remember playing it with you, I think, in Eastbourne. And I remember we were playing something wrong. We were, yeah, we played it incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, and and I think what was interesting about that was um, we were playing that. I think that on that first game we were playing where people could be on the same space as each other. Yeah, you could build in and block each other. So that's right, make- and that was quite interesting. And and then suddenly we realised you couldn't do that. And I think a bit a few people that kind of probably like to be a bit more in your face were a little bit disappointed. So if you've left it a long time, now come back to it. What you'll find is that. The ball placement is kind of more Terra Mystica than it is, you know, Small Worlds or something. It's it's much more a case of there's a subtlety to it, which is actually quite interesting. So hopefully now you've had a bit of a break. You can I'm come showing my uh, my shallow side now, but comparing it Terra Mystica to Small World it is not favourable. <laughs> <laughs> I have never got on with Terra Mystica. I do, I do need to play it more, but I haven't got on with it yet, and I really like Small World. Yeah, and I say I'm, I'm very much just talking about the the, the, the way the you act, act with the board, you yeah. know. So, yeah, definitely that did influence my my subsequent plays. Was that we had that I could build in and stop you from doing something, and it was a completely different game. And then I just don't because obviously we're, we were at a gaming con, we we're playing it. I was tired. I'm not sure my brain clicked over properly to it, so I do need to go back to the game. And that's one of the reasons I've kept it hanging around is that that I need to kind of reset and then go and and play it by the rules, which would be nice, wouldn't it? Absolutely, I think you, Sean, and his loins should get together and, and have a good game with Deus. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Valentine's Day is coming up. That would be perfect. There you go. Chris has set us Family up. Family show, Chris Marling, honestly. <laughs> right, moving swiftly on and away from my loins. Chris, we've talked about 2014. That's 2014 done and dusted for yourself in this episode. What are you looking forward to for this year, 2015? If there's one game that's really sort of stood out for me in terms of 2015, it has to be Roll for the Galaxy which is uh, come out from Rio Grande, designed by um, Wei Wa Huang and Tom Lehman. It's it's a game, as soon as I heard about it, probably two years ago, I started getting excited about it when there were kind of designer diaries going on because I'm a massive Race for the Galaxy fan. I've, I've played Race for the Galaxy 250-ish times face-to-face and I absolutely love it. But I also love dice games, so the thought of my favourite game and a bunch of dice, just, you know, that was just going to be fantastic. And now... I've actually played it, so it is no longer my most anticipated game. But, you know, I have to say, I haven't got another game that I'm actually looking forward to in 2015. But that's another story, I guess. But now I have played Roll for the Galaxy. Well, it's mini review time now then. Go on. How was it? You know, it was just a little bit underwhelming. Just just a tiny bit. I think if I played Roll for the Galaxy and had never played Race for the Galaxy, it would have blown me out of the water. Because it does so many things right. The components are great. 
it plays really smoothly and I was very impressed with it. But unfortunately, as soon as you put that for the galaxy on the end, you know, it's 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 got a very high watermark that it's got to try and reach. And for me, it just didn't quite get there. So Sean and I also played it last weekend separately to Chris. So I think we can all give our sort of very initial thoughts on it. We've only played it once ourselves. I felt like it was shallower than Race for the Galaxy in that you had less control over what you were going to do, less strategy. You weren't doing big explores and taking out particular cards and then and looking for the combos. You kind of had to take what you were given in certain ways. But I think that maybe it might work better for bigger groups because you were all doing things simultaneously. Everyone rolled and then took their actions. It was very quick. It moved along quicker. Sometimes with race, people are chucking down all the cards and, and you need to almost be aware of what they're doing. In Roll for Galaxy, it seemed less important to really be aware of what other people were doing. So it almost worked better with more players. Sean, what do you think about Roll for Galaxy? Yeah, I kind of agree with you, Ryan. I think it added a little bit of theatre to it. It was definitely a watered-down version. Didn't, as you said didn't have to do all that head scratching that you do at Race for the Galaxy. But I did feel that it worked on a, on the level that I think it was intended. I think where Chris said he didn't quite match the sort of for the galaxy, this the the range or the series or whatever you want. I don't think it was supposed to be matching that game or even coming close. I think it was just a watered down version that they intended and I thought it was it was probably more fun than Race for the Galaxy, but obviously not as intense. Yeah, no, you're, you're rubbish and wrong. Race for the Galaxy is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it is I do, awesome. I, I Sorry, do see what you mean, Sean, in, in that I think you're right. I think that if people were scared off from Race for the Galaxy, then you could probably reintroduce those people to Roll for the Galaxy, and I think they would they would get it and they would probably enjoy it more. My only problem is I, I think there are a lot of people, you know, sort of, well, kind of stupid podcast people saying oh it's a race killer and it's clearly not it's clearly much a much different game and i think anyone that really likes race of the galaxy i don't think this is going to replace it in any way shape or form and i don't really i also don't really see it as as an in to teaching people race of the galaxy because race of the galaxy is all about being overwhelmed by the cards which i think kind of ronan you alluded to you know you it's that thing where you go, I'm going to explore because I need to look at 12 cards and I need the one I want to be in there. And if it's not, well, I'm going to do it again next time because if I can get that one card, I'm going to get 60, 70 points and I'm going to win it. And Hold on, hold on. No one else in this podcast has ever scored 60 or 70 points in Race for the Galaxy. Mr. 250 plays, by the way. You're just not trying hard enough. <laughs> oh, no, clearly not, yeah. Get, get you back. Get you back <laughs> to the table. But I, admittedly, that is with all the prestige points and all the expansions and stuff. But no, I, I think I think the thing, I think, again, Ronan, you touched on it, where you're, you're drawing into the tile bag and pulling out a few tiles and looking at those and stacking them on your board. And I think people have already pointed out that once you kind of know what's in the bag more, then you're going to know what you're looking for. And you might do those more expansive tile changes because you can actually get quite a lot of tiles at once if you kind of if you're trying to do that. But but I'm not sure that part of it just didn't seem quite as much fun. But how how much can you try and do it though? Because uh, with the variety of cards you have in race, if I want to make my explore more powerful, I can take out cards that give me explore powers. I will be able to do it by fishing in, grabbing them, setting them up. In Roll for the Galaxy. The tiles you get are so few, it's very difficult to say, right, I'm going to try and get tiles that give me bonuses for my exploring. And then you are rolling the dice. And either you, I know this is slightly manipulated, but either you do or you don't roll eyeballs. 
So either you can or you can't do lots of explores. That's where I felt like I had less control. I had less ability to say, right, you know, in race, I am going to do the fishing and have massive explores because I want to get particular cards. In roll, I couldn't do it. I had to kind of keep slightly to the middle line and, and not really, it wasn't as strategically wide. Now, I, I know it's not trying to be, but that's definitely what I felt. I was a bit hampered in what I really wanted to try and do. And I shouldn't have been, but comparing it in favorably to Race for the Galaxy. No, I think I think I think you're right. I think there's one thing that's worth pointing out about that is that um, there are a lot of tools in the back on the development sides that let you change certain dice rolls to be other things. So we played two games back to back, and in the first game, I think two of the first the two first developments I made, one of them cost five, and it said you can switch any two dice to be whatever you want. Other than what you rolled. Yeah, nice. And the other one said, as long as you've got the most blue planets out, you can change any two dice to any other things that you want to be. So I was rolling five or six dice. And, you know, once you've got like one yellow dice, which has got loads of, you know, star symbols on it, so they can be anything you want. I was in a situation where every time I rolled my dice, I could just decide what four of them were straight away. So... That's like you didn't play Roll for the Galaxy. You played Decide What I Want to Do for the Galaxy. Exactly, yeah. And there was absolutely, half the time, there was no point in me even rolling the dice. And and I won, funnily enough. And in the <laughs> second game, I didn't get any of those tiles at all. And another guy just kept rolling what he needed. You know, got 54 points or something, which is crazy. Like, the first game was over fast, and I think the person that won, he got 30-something. I, I got 37 and won. But the two games felt totally different. And in one way, I like that because that did feel like race for the galaxy. You know, you can have a nightmare game and then a great game, but it felt too, that swing felt way too big. The fact that one game, I didn't even really need to roll the dice. Yeah. That seems And the second game I was totally, when I rolled him, it was like, that's not what I want. And yeah, it was, I could feel the connection between the two games, but one was way less satisfying than the other. So Chris, um, just going back to one of the things you said, you said it wasn't really a way in to race for the galaxy mm, yeah it, see i i thought when i was playing it it kind of was a like a stepping stone maybe to race for the galaxy not in terms of the the depth of race for the galaxy but you've got the ambience of it there you've got the basic end goals maybe not the intricate process of race for the galaxy but do you not think that maybe people who were a little bit frightened and didn't try race for the galaxy give them the feeling of it and then they'll, they'll kind of be a step up when you when you're teaching it to them Personally, I don't think so. I think really that uh, I still think San Juan's probably a better, a better way into Race for the Galaxy because the mechanisms are so similar. And if you can, if you learn how to play that game, then when you go to play Race for the Galaxy, all you're really doing is tackling the symbols. I Whereas, hate that game, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not keen on it either. Just find it really it's... unsatisfactory, but anyway. Yeah, and I don't think there's enough variety in the cards. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but I think it's a good way to teach race. Whereas I think with Roll for the Galaxy, what it does is it's it's got a very different set of mechanisms and it hasn't got, apart from the very basic stuff, like it's got a planet and a development and, you know, and a few other symbols. Thematically, it's got a connection and, you know, in art style. But I think if you actually try to go from that to try and teach the game, going from race to roll is very easy. But I think going the other way, Obviously, I haven't tried it, so I may well be wrong, but that would that would seem like a big leap for me still. Fair enough. Thank you very much for, for coming and joining us in the game pit, Chris. 
It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, and uh, hopefully we'll see you back in the game pit soon. Fingers crossed. Take care, guys. Cheers. So, moving on to hopefully better ground or more firm ground, we're going to talk about now is the best expansion of 2014. As we've talked about in the past in our expansion show, expansions mean a whole range of different things and can add different things to a game like longevity, can change a game, can fix a game. With that in mind, Ronan, what was your best expansion of 2014? Sean, there are dozens and dozens of expansions and ways of adding to Zombicide. There are new seasons, there are big expansions, there are small expansions, there are different zombies you can get, there are different survivors, tons of stuff. It's a game I enjoy, as we've talked about previously, but I tell you, the best expansion I have got, especially in value for money for this year, is the Zombicide Compendium 1. It is an annual that costs about £10, and in there, there are several dozen new missions for the Zombicide Season 1 box. They're missions that the designers have created, that have won competitions, that have appeared in magazines, that have been user-submitted they've come from different sources and they've put them all together into one handy annual and it adds massive longevity to an already good game now Zombicide I like it because I like my plastic mini games to be streamlined and quite simple allow me to make decisions rather than fight with rules which is what I feel Zombicide does albeit you know not massive decisions but they're there the problem with it is that not all the missions in the rule book worked there's the notorious one that definitely did not work the y-shaped one what the companion does is bring in many more better missions. It makes them more structured. It gives you a bit more of a feeling for story. It focuses a bit more. It gives you more variety so you can choose you know, a long, hard one, a short, hard one. There are campaigns in there in which you can start at the blue level and then you actually start a scenario on the yellow level and then orange level. And there's a scenario at the end where you start on red level. But obviously you've you've collected some equipment, you're allowed to keep it, and you've got the experience, and it's all going crazy, tons of zombies coming out, but you're very overpowered. It's like the climax of a massive zombie movie. Just brings Zombicide to a different level without spending £100 on lots of different minis and terrain tiles and lots of funky stuff like that. But going back to actual the design core and giving you new, interesting, and probably better tested ways of playing the game with these lots of different missions. So, Ronan, you said, obviously, that this game just brings better missions and more of them, so the longevity of Zombicide just goes up and up. But you also mentioned that it brings storyline. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? There's missions there, for example, that focus on particular survivors. So there's one for Ned where he's lost his keys and he's determined that you have to go and find these keys. Now, it's the same as any other objective map. You have to go and you have to look under all the objectives. But the story they've given you is... You know the keys aren't there, but Ned is such a grumpy so-and-so that you have to do it just to keep him quiet. And that gives a bit of character to Ned. And we found that players started role-playing Ned like that. And they started playing him a different, bit differently. And he was sort of being more argumentative. Well, there's one for Wanda where she's going back to where she used to work and live. And she stumbles across her ex-boss and her ex-boyfriend and they've both turned into fatties and you have to kill them to finish the mission. And it's a whole thing about she hated her life before. And actually, do you know what? With all the horrible things that are going on around there with zombies and all the rest of it, I'm sure there's lots of bad things, but a little bit of her is quite enjoying being a roller skating, chainsaw wielding, zombie killing badass. And that comes into the play. And then 
the person who was playing Wanda was like, no, Wanda's fired up. She's angry. She's going to steam into this room and she's going to attack him. And then we had to react to what she was doing. So it was very funny. And it just added, you know, that sort of layer of sheen of story that you need for something in Zombicide where the theme is so important to the gameplay. Okay, so my choice for best expansion of 2014 is going to bring Grumpy Ronan to the table again. (laughs) You said we were going positive. (laughs) This is very much a a personal choice for me. It's DC deck building game Crisis Expansion coming from Cryptozoic Entertainment. This game, I would say from the out, is flawed and some of it just doesn't work. But let me talk about what it does first, then I'll tell you my reasons for choosing it. What it does is it adds a cooperative element to the DC deck building game. So the DC deck building game is very much you're against the other players. Now this makes you focus on beating a villain between the team. It adds new cards and new heroes that are more focused towards cooperative play and harder villains to beat that do even nastier things to you but do it to the group. Another thing and the main thing that this expansion brings is crisis cards. Now these cards are events that are going to do something to the group, make it harder for you to build your deck, and you have to beat the crisis before you can tackle the villain. So it's crisis then villain, always crisis then villain, and why do I like this game? It just adds something slightly different to a game that I love. It's as simple as that. There's been times when we've got combinations of villains and crises that you're just looking at them how how could we beat that and you, you almost have to house rule it but i just like what it does it makes the game change in a slightly different way the cooperative element isn't massive you just have to be aware of what each other's doing and make sure that each other gets a sort of nice balance of cards and talk about what cards you've got in your hand and nothing more than i'm a big fan of the dc deck building game this just makes it a little bit more interesting that's all i've got to say now ronan is going to absolutely pan it Hey, don't don't preempt me. I will preempt you when I know exactly what you're <laughs> gonna do. I'm not. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how it went. Okay. So I played this expansion just recently, and I like DC Deck Builder as well. I'm not as massive a fan as I said before, Sean, but I, I think it's good, fun, very simple game, quick play, accelerates as you play, which I like in the game. All the rest of it, fine. We start playing Crisis. It is clear from the offset that it is a bolt-on, and that where this cooperative system is bolted on to this competitive game. There are leaks at the seams. It's not quite fitting perfectly. Some of the cards don't really make sense. Some of the effects are counterintuitive. Some of the ways in which you interact with your fellow players don't really help very much. But because of the charm of the game, because of, well, for us anyway, the charm of the theme, because we like DC Deck Builder, we were okay with that. We were perfectly willing to give that a go and go, okay, it doesn't work perfectly. The game was designed in one way. They've tried to completely change the way it plays. We are fine with just rolling with that and house ruling the odd card, glossing over how it doesn't particularly work because it's still fun. And it is a different way of thinking about it. It's a different way of playing and you are having to work together. But then the game broke. And at that point, all that other house of cards of slight small problems and slight glitches and kinks and things where things didn't really work all came collapsing down and people at the table just went oh that's just a complete pile of in the first game of it just the second pull of so we had with four players there's nine super villains we had to defeat i think nine and the second one we pulled out was atrocitus atrocitus whatever you say his name and world domination how those cards work is world domination means the super villain attacks at the beginning of every player's turn his attack is you discard your whole hand 
So on every player's turn, we were discarding a whole hand of cards. And the only way to prevent that from happening was if you had a defense card in your hand. This was really early on. Our decks weren't that great, and our decks had already been attacked because the game attacked you. So you weren't even as good as you would be in a normal game of DC Deck Builder. We maybe had enough for three or four hands of cards each in our deck. Not a lot of defense cards out. When someone did have a defense card, you cannot deal with the crisis or the supervillain until you clear any villains that are in the row. So because cards were getting added to the row, there was no chance of the odd time a defense card came out, someone would be able to clear all the villains and then the crisis card and then the supervillain. It just couldn't happen. So we knew very quickly we were done for. It was a broken combination. We couldn't do anything about it. It had come out too early in the game. Even if it came out later in the game, I'm not sure we could have dealt with it, but we would have had more of a chance. And when something that bad comes out in a game that was already pushing its boundaries and was really flying by on a bit of charm and a bit of goodwill, it's not good. I don't disagree with you. There were elements that we just had to go, okay, well, let's not look and listen to that rule, but carry on. I liked what it did to the game, as simple as that. There were absolutely flaws in it, but very much a personal choice, and that's why I kind of gave it the caveat at the beginning. That is... <laughs> Are you covering backside before backside is easy covering? Pretty much. <laughs> I know this game it's... gets a kick in anyway, and, I, and there's something that is actually really flawed. Adding on to it is obviously going to get an even bigger kicking, but I think it was a brave attempt, and it actually made me think more about the game. I would rather they just brought out a co-op version of it, to be perfectly honest. I'd rather they, yeah, they've brought out the Rivals version, which two-player, it's designed to be two-player, and the cards work for that. I haven't given it a go yet, but it's in the house. I'd rather they just went and said, we've made a co-op version of DC with a very similar system, but these cards work. That's better for me than, than what they've tried to do here. As I said, I don't disagree with you, but that was my choice for best expansion of 2014. So joining us this time as one of our contributors again is Terry. Hey, Terry. Hello, Ronan. Hello, Sean. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the Game Pit. Thank you. So, Terry, how was 2014 for you in terms of gaming? It was a great year for gaming. I just added up and I played 820 games in 2014. I had my second time at the UK Games Expo, second time in Essen, and for the first time ever, I went to the London on Board Seaside Retreat Away at Eastbourne, LobsterCon, which was great. Um, brain burning, four days of gaming. And I also went to a board game club in Santiago, Chile. So all in all, a very good year. Oh, fantastic. She's got, she's got international on us. She has got international. And you're a roaming reporter in Essen. That must have been very exciting. That was, you know, the highlight of the year. Very well, good. Well, as it should be. So, okay, Terry, we're going to crack on with the questions. And uh, we're going to start with maybe not your best point of 2014. What was your biggest disappointment of 2014? So my biggest disappointment was Five Tribes, um, a 2014 release from Bruno Catala. Um, it's a worker displacement game. So rather than putting workers onto the board, you're taking them off, kind of Mancala style. You pick up a handful, dot them around the board, and where your last one lands, you collect all the workers of that colour in that that square and they do different things you get points in lots of potentially innovative ways but it for me it fell flat i just found it way too tactical you're just waiting until it's your turn see what the layout of the board is then and make the optimum move 
very prone to analysis paralysis and yeah it just really fell flat for me okay so we have talked about five tribes and that's another game that fell a bit flat around here one of the issues to do with five tribes is it's very abstract i didn't really know who i was what i was doing why i was doing it i just was scoring points of various categories do you think if there was a stronger thematic link to the gameplay mechanisms it removes some of that abstract nature of the game would it have changed your opinion at all would you have been more positive well, as I am a massive Steffenfeld fan, I don't need theme. I don't need, though, you know, I, I enjoy thematic games sometimes, but I can enjoy a cube pushy, you know, point scoring, point salad abstract game with a pasted on theme any day of the week. But I just didn't enjoy Five Tribes, not, not because of the lack of theme, but just the analysis paralysis, the you're bidding your points to go in turn order. But if someone leaves a gap wide open for you, it doesn't matter where you go in turn order. You just go behind the player that's playing the worst, that doesn't know what they're doing. And so it was more that than the lack of theme. Maybe if there was some theme, it would have helped, but I don't need that. I just need a good, solid game, and it, it wasn't that for me. So, yeah, I think it's another one of those games that's actually done really well, and a lot of people are claiming that they absolutely love, and it's right at the top of the ratings, and I just don't get it. And I know Ronan feels the same. Obviously, you feel the same, and a big part of the group that we play games with just don't get understand the, the love for this game, but each to their own, I suppose. And, Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, let's, as we always say, let's move on to more positive things. There's a whole well we can go into with five tries. Yeah. The three of us could be here for a while. A well, it's desert-based. That was good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Terry, what yes. was your favourite expansion published in 2014? So it was uh, the expansion to Clash of Cultures. The, the game uh, was 2012. The expansion, Clash of Cultures Civilization, obviously 2014 by Christian Markerson. So Clash of Cultures is a civilization building game, but it's got a map and it's got a tech tree. Um, and you're, you know, building up armies, there's combat, there's technology, all of that going on. And what the civilization expansion adds is each player is now a civilization. They get um, certain technologies that are only available to them. And those are triggered when you buy the, you know, the normal game technologies, you get those ones for free. And it just kind of gives you a bit of direction, which is what I really liked about it. It also adds new buildings and much needed elephants because they were a prominent feature on the front cover of the base game and didn't feature in the game. That caused a lot of upset, including in our house. And so to have the elephants there it was a win-win. I think they had to, didn't they? There was quite a they, lot of abuse going around. Basically, yeah. <laughs> also pirates. It adds pirates. And, oh, I, you know, as you well know... <laughs> That is a huge selling point for me, so I was happy with that. Well, there you go. I'd say you've got a thing for pirates. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's got what they want. Nathan got his elephants and you got your pirates, so everybody was exactly. happy. Right, so I'm a big fan of Clash of Cultures myself, but there was that sort of situation where you could get, you find yourself in where you, you kind of get that optimum strategy for each game. Does this game do enough to shake the players out of their comfort zone? Does it change it up in that way? It's, it's interesting you say that because I actually think there's a you know more of an argument that the Civilization expansion kind of 
gives people you know something they have to do because if everyone's got a civilization and you're not using yours you're ignoring it and doing something else you're going to be at a disadvantage so it's more an argument i think that the expansion kind of forces people in one direction but at the same time you get a choice of two so you know you can choose where you want to be and also for each civilization there's three different leaders and so again you know they they make it slightly different but i think this does quite a lot to add just some extra options extra buildings that you can have you know personally i hadn't found the optimum strategy with clash of cultures i don't know if i ever won a game oh yeah two player games nathan but other than that i don't think i've ever won a game um and so (laughs) i think i was still definitely still exploring it but this has given me more to explore and to be honest the first time we played it and we explained it to someone who'd not played the base game at all it just felt like this should always have been there this this is part of it you know asymmetrical starting should have always been part of it um and it just kind of rounded out the whole game really did you did you feel that it, it was nice to have a face to your civilization as well an identity yeah definitely and i was vikings when i played so as close to pirates as i'm gonna get <laughs> uh, most recently I, I felt like i really used the text that were available from the vikings having a different starting tile Exactly. She genuinely um, grow beard. It was that did, into it. Did she plat it? <laughs> I did. No, I, but I just I I really I really like it, and you know I think there's a lot more to explore with the with the expansion as well. I love this expansion. It's it's fantastic. I agree with you that some of it feels like it should have just been there from the start. It may have been overwhelming if no one used to, you know Clash of Cultures when it first came out. I didn't know how big a hit it was going to be. It does add a lot of plastic and, and would have cost lots for a base game all that in, but I think the extra units that have brought into it add a little bit more to the military. Not a lot. The, the fight's still quite basic, but there's a little tiny bit more to it. I like how you, can, you have to use your leaders. They don't just give you bonuses. You generally have to use them in certain ways and be quite clever with them. I think it's a brilliant choice. So, yeah, Clash of Cultures, fantastic. Uh, Civilizations, great expansion. Right. What was mm-hmm. the best game that you played that was new to you this year, but not published in 2014? So for this one, I chose the game Vikings, which is a game by Michael Kiesling, and it was actually published in 2007. And I think anyone playing it now, you could tell them it was a, I thought you could tell it was a brand new release, and they're not, you know, it doesn't feel like it's seven years old. This game is basically, you've got a rondelle with tiles and Viking people, um, and you're buying the combinations of tiles and, and Vikings and placing them on your own individual board. And obviously, there's rules for placement of those. And as you buy tiles, the cheaper tiles, the other tiles become cheaper. And it plays two to four. And I think it plays nicely with all player counts. And it's played over six rounds. And I just really have enjoyed getting to know it. And it's my top choice this year. So the game is called Vikings, Terry. But mm-hmm. not once did I get to kill or pillage in the game. Would it be more thematic to have called it Frightened Peasants? Um, maybe. But, no, I will I will try and defend the game. The thing is, I like it because I don't have to pillage or fight with people. There is no you know, direct player interaction. It's all about taking a task that someone else might want or you know, them taking your tiles, but not so much that. But, you know, that, that kind of thing, and you're building your own player board, is in no way aggressive. And that's what I like about it. But it still has the Viking theme. There's, you know, there's boats, there's Viking-shaped meeples. It's all going on. Self-confessed Feld fan here being asked a thematic question. (laughs) (laughs) 
Terry, I got to agree with you. This may or may not be on in my top five for the year as well. So, fantastic game that I discovered this year as well. And yeah, just I think whatever little bit of theme does come in, just comes in from what the the Vikings do, the little powers that they've got. But I, Sean, they're not Viking powers. They're like they make food. And they protect you, and they make gold. Yeah, protecting. They're like warriors. They're warriors protecting the village. You got, you got the fishermen. Policemen, if they're protecting people. <laughs> they're Vikings. They should be out stealing things. Car, you, you just go for the Hollywood symbols, don't you? Lock up your dogs and hide behind your women. They also had to feed and eat and make money and flesh. Also, the feeding <laughs> bit's great because any game that involves feeding. I know for a fact that Nathan will not feed his people. <laughs> he will be punished. He just doesn't know how to feed. Um, so that, that sounds I, like you should go to relate to the gaming, He just doesn't feed his people ever. And I've I'm just with got him. this vision of Nathan in a bib with you spoon feeding him now. It's not good. Way past Vikings now. Terry, bring us back into shape. Uh, what game had you not played for a while, but this year it came off that bottom dusty shelf and you have been enjoying it loads? What's your best out of the dust game? So, my best out of the dust game is Saboteur by Frederick Moisson. This is a hidden role kind of pre Avalon game. I did. 2004, it was published. And for me, basically, I've not been gaming long enough, I'm not, you know, old like you two, to kind uh, of hack games that I played ages ago, I'm sorry. Um, and then new ones. But this is basically last year, uh, two, sorry, 2013, it was my Avalon year. I found Avalon, I played it loads, I thought it was great, and then I got sick of it and stopped playing it. And so that all happened, and then so 2014, it was like, I was kind of missing that kind of game like Resistance Avalon but I wasn't you know looking for that and I found Saboteur again and it's just much better for family you know for my family for non-gamer friends because it's not as abstract as Avalon you are doing something you're building towards this gold if you're a good guy and you're trying to stop the people building towards the gold if you're a bad guy you're not going on a a mission that, that we know nothing about the mission it's just a mission like an Avalon so that was kind of the reason it came back in um and it's, yeah, it's really good fun. Okay, so Terry, um, I don't know that much about Saboteur, but the game is actually listed for three to ten players, so that's quite a big spread. Does it actually work for all of those numbers? And at the sort of upper levels of the count, is the downtime a problem? So actually, this game works so much better with the large player count than it does with the small. I would never, ever pick this up as a three-player game. I think minimum six people. But yeah, and it's very quick. You'll literally play a card, take a card, play a card, take a card. That's all you're doing on your go. So as long as you're kind of pushing people and going through it, there doesn't need to be any downtime. Because any time you're not playing a card, you need to be accusing someone of being a saboteur. Or defending yourself when you're getting accused. Okay, so it sounds like a different form of gamey argument from Avalon. Yeah, it's just less aggressive you know if you want to come out as a saboteur you play a rockfall and remove the best card in the game or you play a dead end and there you've outed yourself and now they can attack you but you can attack them whereas you never out yourself in in avalon so you this can... is the, this is the less aggressive game where you attack each other no but <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
yeah, you attack each other with your the cards, the cards you're playing, rather than just with words. It's less socially aggressive, is that what you're saying? Uh, exactly. It's less, yeah, exactly that. Pressure, cool. Okay, lovely. Okay, so moving onwards and upwards, Terry, what was your favourite game published in 2014? Okay, well, let's give it a go with the um, Polish title, Tzimniskov de Mostowo, or Mysterium, and Equally, the designer's names, I'm not going to manage those. Uh, but Mysterium. So this is the game that's kind of been called Dixit meets Cluedo, because it's a cooperative game where one player is a, a ghost, they've been wrongly accused of murder, and they're trying to communicate to the psychic detective who the, the murderer is, what the murder weapon is, what the murder location is, um, rooms in a house. And they're doing that with Dixit-like cars, because they're giving these weird and wacky dreams. Um, and it's just, you know, it's really, really good fun. It's, you know, I love Dixit, and Dixit is one of the first hobby games I played, and I really, really enjoyed it. And this just takes those beautiful cards, or that idea, but turns it into, you know, a non-party game. It's kind of a party game, but it's, it's got a purpose more than Dixit does. So, this is a really good choice. I played Mysterium this year, loved it. I had a copy over Christmas, played it with the kids, played it with different people who came to visit. It was universally well received. It's coming out in English soon. I'm sure it's going to be a huge, huge hit. But very importantly, mm-hmm. Nathan is absolutely awful at this game. How is it that he's still alive, having you played this with him? I know, it's really hard. But I think the thing is, he is terrible at it, but everyone can be terrible at it. The first time you play as a detective... You're looking at the ghost saying, what did you, why did you give me that? Why would you ever think to give me that? Um, but actually, when you play as the ghost, you've got six cards only in your hand. You, you see something, you're like, this card feels like that weapon. And people just don't feel the same way as you. And it's really hard. And also, uh, the other thing is, if I'm thinking, what can I make, what can I give Nathan to make him think of the poison? And I've got a card that looks, you know, that I'm like, oh, that's really poison-like. I give it to him. I didn't think, would that card make him think of all the other weapons? And so he's like, oh, that looks just like another card that I wasn't looking at. And, you know, it's, it's really hard to be the ghost. So then you have a bit more sympathy. But no, Nathan is is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I haven't played it myself. I'm waiting for the English version to come out. But it Get seems... It. I will. I will. I think I'm going to pre-order it just based on your, your guarantees there. I think yeah. it sounds enticing, and I think it really sounds different. It doesn't sound like anything I've got in my collection, apart from, obviously, you said it, it links up with Dixit a little bit. It's likened to Dixit a little bit, but with that Cluedo aspect, so, yeah. In fact, we actually did one round where we used Dixit cards instead of the Spirit Dream cards from Mysterium, because they are, you know, fairly similar. I think it's harder with the Dixit cards, because they are less noisy than the Mysterium cards, so there's more going on in the Mysterium cards, there's more to read into it, whereas Dixit made it a bit harder for the ghost. But, you know, there is that option if you want to change it up a bit. Cool, that's interesting to hear, because we were thinking about doing it, but also the Mysterium cards are all slightly on the theme, aren't they, of that Victorian times, a bit darker, so I did wonder with the much broader themes of Dixit whether it would be harder to get relevant clues. Yeah, I think it's always hard, like... You know, it just depends what you draw, and it depends which of your Dixit cards you want to use. We have every Dixit expansion, and we just shuffle them all together. That's how yes. we roll. Agreed. Uh, 
Yeah, but just we just thought we'd give it a try. We'll see. So because if you played with the same group, this is my one criticism of Mysterium. If you played with the same group and the same ghost over and over again, things could get tired. You know, you need to mix it up. You need to play with different groups, but that's fine. And if it means I don't have to play with Nathan, I can cope with that. <laughs> He's getting a kick in today. <laughs> okay, so moving on. That was your best of 2014. What game are you most looking forward to in 2015? What can you not wait to play? So this, for me, is Pandemic Legacy. So this is Matt Leacock, um, and it's taking the pandemic game, the classic co-op, and turning it into a kind of almost campaign-style game like they did with Risk Legacy. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because Pandemic is one of the first hobby games that we owned, that we played. First cooperative game I ever found out about ever played so it's it really big for me and I still play it now but it's you know maybe becomes a little bit tired a little bit repetitive whereas the beauty of this is that every game that you play is going to feed into the next game what happened in that first game affects what happens in your next game and you just carry on we've already got kind of the plan of buying at least two copies of this and doing a campaign with two separate groups you know, with people that we see maybe once every couple of months and we'll get this out and, and where do we leave off and, you know, kind of moving on from that. That's why I'm really excited about it. So I think you've probably already answered most of this anyway, Terry, but uh, what are you hoping that the legacy system will add to Pandemic that the other expansions just haven't managed to do? Well, I think it, it's that. It's that what you do in this game will, you know, have consequences for the future. If I've spent my time saving the world, I want people to remember. Instead, you pick up the box for, to play your second game, and it's as if you never did all that hard work. So I just want some recognition for my hard, uh, you know, my hard work trying to save the world from those diseases. That's a very limited form of recognition you're chasing. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely, completely looking forward to Pandemic Legacy myself. Great choice. I really want to see what Rob Daviel can do outside of, of Hasbro and and taking this forward with Matt Leacock and see what twist they can put in it because I think you, you can think of obvious ways of making Pandemic a Legacy game. Can they think of something different? Can they think of something clever that's not obvious and, and really bring some depth to what is a great game system? Okay, Terry. Well, thank you so much for coming on and joining us in the Game Pit once more. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So, as you know, you're not always able to play, or in fact, ever able to play, every game that comes out in a year. So when we do a year review of 2014, we're going to miss some of the games that came out this year. Same for when we did 2013, and so on. And sometimes you just play a game that's from further back that actually has a big impact on you. In the next section, we're going to talk about the top five games that were new to us this year that weren't published in 2014. Don't think it needs much more of an introduction than that. Sean, hit us with your number five. All right, number five, Ronan, another game that we've talked about quite a bit on the Game Pit, and that is Pathfinder, the adventure card game. This just missed out on the 2014 release. It was late 2013 when it came in, and it's from Peso Publishing. Just really quickly, for those who don't know and haven't heard before, this is basically a card game where you take on the role of a hero, and it's got really strong role-playing elements running through it where you're building up your character, as you go on mission after mission, working together, if there's more players, to 
gather equipment, complete missions, and basically advance through this overarching quest. Ronan, this game, we've talked about it before, it is another game that's flawed. There's, there's a little pattern emerging <laughs> in, in, my, in my choices. Lots of problems, including the difficulty levels. I had a problem with the artwork, uh, lack of variety. But God, is this the top five or bottom five? <laughs> <laughs> but I like it because it scratches a niche that nothing else that I have found yet does. Now, there are games coming into the market like Shadowrun Crossfire and a few others that are starting to have a look at this combining board games with role-playing games. But this is the only one I've found that really does the job close to properly. The role-playing aspect, although it is clunky, it does allow immersion with your character, and the co-op side just about holds up to that. So, for me, it's just a game that I don't have in my collection, and something that I enjoy playing, so this is my number five, Ronan. We went over this a lot in the Dungeons & Dragons episode we did, we talked about, you know, is there a great Dungeons & Dragons game? And this was mentioned all the way through it, and... We said there isn't a great Dungeons & Dragons game, but this was one of the ones that kind of covered some aspects of it. And that's exactly what it is. I think it does some aspects of making a role-playing game into a quicker card game well, and some aspects are not so well. And it's a game that's going to be surpassed, I think. But it's good. I think it was in my top five for last year. I find it a charming game. I don't think mechanically it's that great. But I still rate it quite highly. It's, I think it's similar to how I started with DC Crisis, which we talked about a minute ago, in that despite its flaws, I didn't mind them so much because actually I was still doing stuff. There were positives to it. I was making decisions. There were discussions going on between the players. There was the discovery element, which you get in role-playing games. What is around the corner? What is that next card going to be? I think the hunting of the henchman and the villain in the decks is quite exciting in itself. You go, oh, he's got to be in the bottom two. Oh, I can't believe he's the last one. Or we got him early. We weren't quite ready. That's, that's a fun thing to have. There's not enough variety in the gameplay. I was really disappointed in Skulls and Shackles they brought out. So they brought out a whole new cycle starting in August 2014 and didn't, I think, learn from what people liked and didn't like from this adventure card game, the first one, the Rise of the Rune Lords that went through. I wish they had. I think that's impacted on sales. What I can tell, I certainly haven't seen. I've seen people playing Rise of the Rune Lords recently. I have not seen anyone playing Skulls and Shackles. I like it. I don't think there's really enough incentive to keep going. I don't think they've got that achievement, get new cards thing exactly right. But I enjoy the game, and I think it's a cool choice. You're number five. Thank you, Ronan. That's quite right. We have to agree on something. <laughs> so what's your number five, Ronan? My number five was, a, I think, a glaring hole in my gaming experience. I had never played Kalos until this year. Known as the Granddaddy Work Placement, whether that is true or not. Designed by William Attia, who came out with Spirit recently. Maybe that's what brought it back into my head. It really looks and plays as a Euro. It is from its time of 10 years ago now, off the boards, the medieval sort of renaissance sort of theme within those couple of hundred years. I know that's quite a broad time spring, but around there, with the palette that is used, with the way that you do things to score victory points... I don't think that visually it's going to appeal to a certain type of gamer. But there is a meanness to it. You can screw with each other, which actually feels quite modern. There's different ways of being mean, especially by manipulating the provost or cutting off the end actions that people have put into. You can be aggressive in your passing. 
if you see that someone's desperate to do something, they haven't done it yet, you can pass and make things more expensive. The theme's not there, but the gameplay is dense and it's thinky and it's tough. And it's something that as soon as I played, even though I took a bit of a shellacking, I wanted to play it again. It doesn't feel like an endless, pointless churn of actions and at the end someone wins. It feels like you can see what's happening. You can affect what's happening. You're given difficult choices. You have to prioritize where you go and have a plan. It feels like a really good Euro. It's probably as low as five in this list because I didn't play it often enough to really justify it going above some of the others ahead of it. But Kalis, I don't know how I missed it for so long and I've really enjoyed it. So, Ronan, I think I've played this once a long time ago. I remember enjoying it, but I also remember, as you brought back to my attention just now, it being really, really mean. I just wonder, do you feel that the game is maybe too unforgiving if you fall behind? Because people can really realise that they have no chance of winning before the end in this game. That's one of its biggest criticisms. Okay, yeah. I mean, I knew that I wasn't going to win before the end of the game that we were playing, I had left myself open to be provosted quite viciously, and, and it happens. No one held back on that. Do I think it's too mean? I think, as long as you know, that's, that's in the game. Well, when you play Kalis, you're not playing for a, a whimsical storytelling experience. I think you say to people, this is a Euro. It's quite tight. It's like when I teach Agricola. I say, this game hates you. This game wants you to starve. Be aware of that. When you play Kalis... This game is tight. If you're playing with people who have played a few times, they're likely to beat you, but you will learn as you're playing. And I think that is part of the appeal to me as well, is that I feel like I played it, and I played it again, and I got a little bit better, and I feel like I can continue to get a little bit better. Okay, then. So you mentioned whimsical storytelling games, which is going to lead me nicely. <laughs> <laughs> into... You just want to cause arguments in this episode. <laughs> into my number four choice, and yet another game that's going to bring Mean Ronan to the table. Hello, Mean <laughs> Ronan. <laughs> Boo. Boo. Yes. <laughs> right, my number four choice is Gloom. You're in trouble for this game, and you know you are. <laughs> I know I'm in a lot of trouble for this game. It's Gloom, the 2005 release from Atlas Games. What is it? It's Well, very quickly, it's a storytelling card game where you have characters laid out in front of you, and you've got to kill them off, but also make them as miserable as possible before you kill them off. This game is all about the storytelling. Why do I like it? It's different. It's refreshing. I think it's imaginative. I think it encourages creativity. It makes people talk across the table. And there are so many games that are just head down, no interaction, people muttering. It's just a breath of fresh air just to have this game that just encourages people to talk across the table. The gameplay isn't going to win awards. It's very basic. There's not a lot to it. But it's the imagination and the creativity that makes this game just take wings and fly off. Now, Ronan must have changed his mind about this, because, Ronan, I believe that you've got this in your household now. Yeah, I did. I did. It appeared at Christmas time. Did it? Did it? Oh. Someone bought it for one of my daughters. Oh, God. That that must be a lovely, lovely person. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's her favourite uncle. (laughs) My less than favourite cousin. (laughs) Oh, Sean. No. Just no. That might be all I've got to say. It doesn't work as a game, okay? Because what defines a game? You cannot play to win. Playing to win ruins this game. It takes away any fun there is in the experience of Gloom. Okay, so Gloom is not a game 
thing. It is an experience. So we have to start there. Okay? I disagree. The but problem. Oh, but if you play to win, you're not doing the funnest things. You're not telling the funniest stories. I'm not saying you're not that playing you go. The cards. I'm not saying that you go all out to win and that's your main focus and nothing else matters. But just to have that sort of in the back of your head that you're trying to win the game as well. Oh, and to stitch other people up is part of the game. So you're trying to win, but you're also being funny and making stories about stitching other characters up. So I think, yeah, it's not the be all and end all winning and losing in this game. But I think you bear it in mind. But playing to win involves screwing each other up, right? So playing the cards that make other people's family members happy. But doing that just makes the game far too long. It just increases it, increases it, because players are planning to kill someone off, then you make them happy, then they've got to spend a round undoing what you've done, then you make another one happy, and then they, and then people are just doing and undoing each other's work all the time, which just makes it interminable. It's just, oh, now it's gone on too long. Half an hour of looking at those cards, making a kind of a funny story up and getting on with it you know i can do that i don't mind that it's sort of the same as munchkin munchkin with a 30 minute timer i quite enjoy it because the cards are okay and they're quite funny i have a good time that that's a cool game gloom though at least munchkin you're playing to win that's what makes it funny because people are stitching each other up i put gloom on the same level only you're not playing to win because that makes it less fun and less funny and the cards you know i've only i have played it a few times i know what cards are in the game now Playing it with different people helps, but you're going to hear fairly similar stories. Each of the players has to be invested in the storytelling part of the game to make it fun. Everyone has to be able to see cards, put together stories, react to other people's stories, tie things in. You know that sort of sit in a circle, tell a story game only works if people feed off each other. And if someone sits there and just sort of says something obvious or breaks the chain of a story. So if someone's run off with the circus, been something to do with weasels, then met the queen and then attacked by a duck, and someone's threaded the whole story together, and someone just chucks in a random card and goes, yeah, and then they got a train somewhere. And you're like, oh. Any fun that was building up was broken. So it's just too often I'm not having fun. It goes too long. You can't play to win because then that makes it really less fun. And I hate you for buying it. Thank you. We have, <laughs> we have spent a long time talking about Gloom in the previous episode, so without further ado, Ronan, you're number four. My number four is another worker placement game. Is this going to be a pattern? It is from Tony Boydell, 2012, Snowdonia. This is a worker placement game themed around building the railway up to the peaks of Snowdonia in Wales. It's the tallest mountain in Wales. It doesn't make it particularly tall worldwide, but for us, you know, big, big mountain. And they did build a railway up the side of it, which is still there. It's a game in which everything feels tight. The game itself is going to react to what's happening and is going to be attempting to build the railway at the same time as the players, which takes away scoring opportunities from you. So you cannot linger around too long as a group. You have to get on with it. So there's also then a race to score the points and take the point scoring opportunities because first of all, you have to dig the railway bed and then you have to lay the track and then that will allow you to, to build the stations. And these points become available and you have to be ready to pounce when they become available. And you can't leave them hanging around too long because the game itself will gobble them up. Really interesting. You only get two workers. Manipulating the start player is important because with only two workers, there's only certain things you can do, obviously, and the space is limited and where you can go, like any good worker placement. It moves very quickly. It's playing times advertised at 60 minutes. When you start, maybe 90 minutes, it will certainly creep down towards 60 minutes the more you play it. Probably getting to around that time now with players who've played it even just a few times. 
the weather in the game means there's lots of variety in each game. The weather gets sunny and it gets rainy, and that means you can take more actions and fewer actions. It's really easy to expand. So there are a bunch of really small expansions. Expansions are just a small pack of cards which you lay out and changes all the action spaces, which gives a surprising amount of variety for a very small change to a game, which I think is great. It's, it's good design to be able to do that. Doesn't hang around too long. I always feel like I could have played better. I don't think I've ever won it. Well over half a dozen plays of it now, just in this year. It feels a bit different to other games I've played. I really like the design of it, and I really enjoy Snowdonia, and I've managed to get myself a copy of it with all the expansions, and I'm very happy. Sean? So, Ronan, you're slowly talking me round to this one, but I'm going to tell you what put me off in the first place. First off, the visually... It looks really dreary, looks a bit boring, it all looks a bit mm, beige. And secondly... I think it, it has a particular palette, I don't think it's very striking, but actually, I think it creates a feel. creates a feel of a dreary mountain in Wales. Rumour has it, and people I've spoken to that don't particularly like the game, say that the downtime is a big killer in this. No way, that's not possible. Okay, maybe it's possible with AP. I can understand that, because this is one of the games, I will say, in which I probably pause most, and I stop and go, oh, cracky. Because it is tight, because it's a race, because sometimes you go, oh, I'm not going to get what I need, or, oh, that person's just beating me to what I needed to get, or there's contracts you can get which give you bonuses and ways to score and stuff, and, oh, cracky, they've nipped in ahead of me there, oh, what am I going to do, or, oh, I can't afford to pay for that when I thought I could. Yes, maybe there is some AP there, and I think the other side of it might be because you can plan, because you only have two actions. You can go, oh, I need to do this and this this turn, and maybe next time I need to do that and that. I can see that possibly being a little bit frustrating, but everyone takes a turn to lay their workers, you know, one, 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 two, 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 two. And then you, like, people get a third worker, by the way, but sometimes in the game. And then you just go left to right and resolve them. So it's like everyone kind of, not quite simultaneously, but just in order of placement, resolves your actions so it's not like people are having big huge long 10 minute turns when you're doing nothing if downtime it comes from ap but that's because i think it's quite clever in the puzzly tightness of it and sometimes you get screwed by other players not when they've beaten you to the punch okay that's fair enough as i said i think you are starting to convince me to give this one a go but moving on to our number three choices and mine is Among the Stars which is the 2012 release from Artipia Games it's a game that we haven't really talked about on the game pit before so what is it? It is a two to four player card drafting and tile placement game set in a sci-fi outer space make believe world where you are building a space station and you're in competition to build a more productive space station with your opponents the main mechanism within the game is the card drafting, where it works exactly like a game like Seven Wonders, where you're going to take a card, pass the deck on. It's all about just chaining cards in your space station together. There are cards that let you power certain rooms in the space station, so you've got to make sure that they can gather power. There are various levels even within the base game you can start off with a very basic game with just the space station then you can add in characters that are going to give you little bonuses there's a direct war game where you should go and actually into conflict with the other player there's expansions like the ambassadors expansion that adds even more to this 
it's just a very well put together game. So why do I like it? I love card drafting. It's one of my favourite mechanisms in games. I love the artwork in this game. It looks amazing. It feels like you're building your own space station. That's mine. I'm building it very much as in a game like the Castles of Mad King Ludwig or Suburbia. At the end of the game, you've got something that you've built. Everything about it feels thematic. You've got to power this space station. You don't just lay tiles. You've got to put certain cards at the outer edges of it, like your weapons cards. Otherwise, they don't aren't as effective. You've got to have certain things that are close to your power station cards. It all works thematically. Most importantly, it stays well within its welcome period of time. It plays quickly. And I think it's just a very strong game, especially with those ambassadors added in Ronan. I think, yeah, it's a good game, actually. <laughs> it does drafting well, it does tile laying well. I like the spatial aspect to it. I think that I was talking to you the other day, was I about D6 Generation? They were talking about they play it in a tight space, and wherever you draft and build, you actually block each other. I think that sounds like a fantastic way of playing it. You can deliberately build directly at each other and stop people adding things to certain areas. That's something I'd like to give a try to. I think... It's slightly too easy to negative draft because as you're drafting, you can see exactly what the next person wants and what each tile is worth to them. And therefore, it's quite possible once you've played a round or two to start going, well, it's worth, this is worth eight points to him if I pass it there, so I'm going to nick it for two points. And things like that can come into play. It can get a tiny bit negative. That is a small criticism, though possibly hasn't got as much going on to make it really fantastic for me. I think it's quite a nice fairly quick fillery sort of a game cleanse the palette sort of thing move on but it is a good game and i want to see all that warfare you and me and a couple other people playing in a tight space blocking each other spatially <laughs> yeah that, that won't have us flipping tables and swinging for the <laughs> <laughs> okay so finally we agree on something what's your number three ronan my number three is a release from 2012 which made massive splash when it came in it's currently sitting just outside the top 13 board game geek two player game from Brian and Benjamin Pope it is Mage Wars game is themed about two magic users some description and depending upon what description that is you get a different set of spells to play the game as a magic user you have a set of spells you may summon creatures or equipment or do enchantments or fire direct damage or lay things on the map and you're playing spatially on a map and you are going to be fighting against each other attempting to damage each other and get your health down it's kind of like a little bit magic the gathering on a board with your monsters fighting but with a tactical aspect to it on a grid the really groovy thing is that when you pick which spellcaster you're going to be you actually get a spell book with the cards in there which is so much fun that adds so much to it it's incredible i know i am sad i didn't believe the hype when it first came out and people were saying what a great great game it was i was like it can't be that good it's just another version of this tired theme well not tired thing, but themes been done before of, of majors cast spells at each other Oof, i was wrong it's fantastic it really is and not only is it fantastic but they have taught you how to play the game the rulebook is fairly complicated because there's so many options you have because they're trying to cover all the different things you can do but then what they do is they give you suggested small spell books to start with where you're playing with a limited section of cards because unlike when you've got a deck of cards 
when you have your spell, but you can open it up and play any spell that's in there. You're not drawing from a hand of five or from a hand of seven, or you can play any one of your cards. So they give you a limited selection to play apprentice games, they call it, which seems really intimidating to start with. But I tell you, the minute you start playing, 10, 15 minutes in, you start going, oh, yeah, I want to play that spell. Oh, I know what that spell does. Oh, let's try that spell. As long as you're not too fussed about winning, as long as you're not too worried in those first couple of learning games, but more interested in exploring and, and trying different mechanisms to see how that works, you will get the game. And it's not long. An apprentice game takes maybe half an hour. Spend an hour playing a couple of apprentice games. You know how to play Major Wars. You can start playing with full spell books and go for it. I enjoyed this so so much. I didn't believe that it could stand up to the hype, and it did. You feel like you are rubbish at it to start with, and then you feel like every time you play a card, you're getting a little bit of oh, that could click with that card and that could do that. Oh, that would allow me, oh, I should have done that a different way. Next time I'm going to play this better, and next time, and next time. Even when you're playing badly, you're still doing cool stuff. There's not not like you're playing a card and nothing happens. Something will happen. You'll just think, oh, I could have done that better. Fun, deep, they've made it accessible, brilliant. Believe the hype. Mage Wars is brilliant. So, Ronan, what you're saying in that is almost in direct contradiction to what almost everybody else is saying about it, is that, not that it's not a great game, I think it's definitely the type of game that I would be all over if I get into it and had that investment in time, which is my point. People just say, if you're going to get into this, you have to dedicate time, you have to learn it, there's so much to learn, so much to do, to be good at it and to be effective at it, you just have to spend a lot of time, you have to dedicate a big period of time when this is pretty much the only game that you're playing seriously. I don't know, people are trying to play at what, a competition level, or they want to be world champion or something. It's just not true. I'm telling you, I enjoyed my very first game of this. My second game was even more fun. My third game was even more fun, just with apprentice decks. Am I any good at it? No. Is it going to be hard to become a very competent player? Yes. That will take a long time. You will need to learn your own spell books. You will need to learn what's in the spell books off your opponents. Once you get into it and you get expansions, there is a certain amount of deck building. Of course, obviously, there are set spell books, but it's all cards and sleeves. You can take them out. You can build all kinds of crazy decks if you get that deep into it. I'm sure people have built killer spell books that are just impossible to beat and all the rest of it at a very high level. You don't have to play like that for it to be fun. That is not true. I have got maybe six spell books. You could play just with those six apprentice decks and you would have fun for 20 games. Easy. Sorry, just one point. Do you pretty much have to either find a group of a lot of people that play this game so that there's all types of experience levels or do you have to pick somebody and basically take them on the journey with you so that you kind of match each other's experience levels? That could possibly be an issue in that if I've played it 50 times and you never played it, I will beat you. I think then it's down to the person, as in certain games, it becomes sort of teacher-pupil for a little while, whereby I'm not necessarily going to play to win. I might play just to explore different spells, just to show you, oh, I could do this, I could do that, and this will work that way, and all the rest of it. 
but it's difficult because you have to allow the person to learn by themselves well for all of them to have fun, not, not just, you know, spoon feed them the game. I can see that can be in a concern, Sean. I think it's down to how sensible those people are. If I play 50 times, it's your first game. If I play to crush you, I'm an idiot and I've lost a potential player. We're on to our top twos, Ronan. And I'm going to kick off with my top two is Vikings from 2007 and Z-Man Games. We have, again, talked about Vikings in the past, but just roughly to go over it, it's a 2-4 player economy, tile placement and tableau building game where you represent various Vikings. You are building little islands, little chains of islands on your tableau and you're basically trying to score with the Vikings that you place on these islands. Each Viking will score in a slightly different way and... There's a clever little mechanism in the middle of the game board, which is a wheel that basically rotates as people take and pay for the tiles and changes the price of these tiles as you go along. Very quick overview of the game. Why do I like it? This game is thought-provoking, but simple. It's really easy to get into, but there's a lot of headaches in this, making those choices. It's involving, the components are bright, colourful, there's just enough interaction, as I said, with the taking of the tiles. The theme isn't massively strong, but the mechanisms in this game work so well and are so enjoyable that it just makes up for any lack of theme. I didn't get into this game on its first print run at all, I heard all about it, never really got to play it. Then when the second print run came out from Z-Man Games, I jumped all over, I bought it and immediately loved it. And Ron, I think it might be another game that we agree on. We do agree, Sean. We reviewed it fairly recently, that's never stopped us talking going on and on again, but (laughs) it's a very good game. I am awful at it. It's a really strong choice. It's a game I am still seeing since the reprint. I'm seeing it around a lot at gaming groups, and I think it really deserves that attention. It was kind of a a shouted for and demanded reprint, and that's happened, and people are enjoying it, and that's great. Fantastic game. Brilliant. So, what's your number two, Ronan? Well, this is controversial, Sean, because you're a big bully. This was going to be in my top five for 2014, and Sean then got a rules lawyer on me. It's patch history. Now, Again! It, <laughs> it officially came out in 2013 when there were a whole hundred copies made in English, but Sean insisted this is not a 2014 game, so it appears here, even though I got it at this year's um, it's from Yun Min Jung, Young Hyop Kim it's for two to four players, it's a civilization building game with an absolute ton of mechanism all thrown together, I have gone on about it loads I'm not going to go on about it too much, it's the one in a million lightning strike hit where you throw that much crud at the civ building theme and it works, it's fantastic it's just barely slightly controlled lunacy the very strong possibility that this game is as broken as galactic strike force but no one's noticed it yet because there's so much going on and no one's really grokked what is wrong with it it's broken in so many ways that it actually breaks back itself in together and it works it's it's puzzly it's deep it's interactive frustrating but in a fantastic way very hard to describe if you like deeper longer games give patch history a go i have heard nothing but positive reviews from people around me who have played it i haven't met anyone who didn't like it maybe one yeah it's pretty good score lots of fantastic scores brilliant game 
Are they paying you to, to, to mention this on every podcast? Am I, I'm getting accused of that as well, am I? <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. I would like to point out now that no money or even a copy of the game has changed hands. I just think it's brilliant and it, it just deserves to be played. To complete your life as a gamer, you need to play Patch History just to see the lunacy that is there and within. Okay, I'm just going to play Devil's Advocate. I still haven't managed to play this game. People complain. Now, I've had to dig hard to find these complaints, because as, as Rona said, there's a lot of people do like this game. But these few people complain that there is a lot of upkeep for not a lot of action. I don't think so, because you control all that upkeep. You control what goes where... And every decision you make of, I get one more in this or one more in that, is important. And opens up different possibilities. Should I get more political points or should I focus more on getting more money? Will affect something else. Because if you've got more political points, you can do certain actions which other people need to be aware of. If you've got more money, you're going to be stronger in the auction phase, which other people need to be aware of. So it's all a give and take, and you are controlling that. So yes, there's some things to keep track of, but... Keeping track of them is natural within the game because it's part of your decision-making process ongoing throughout the phases. Lovely. Okay, so on to the big ones. And my number one choice isn't really a surprise. It's Eldritch Horror. (laughs) Eldritch Horror, the 2013 release from Fantasy Flight. If you've ever played Arkham Horror then basically this is a streamlined version of Arkham Horror. It's been described as an Arkham Buster. I'm not quite of that opinion, but I can see why people would get rid of Arkham from their collection because, as I said, this is a much more streamlined. It's more focused on gaming elements. It just does everything quicker and sharper than Arkham does. If you like the long rambling role-playing elements and storytelling of Arkham, then you're going to stick with that. And I, I will stick with Arkham, but for now, Eldritch Horror is exactly the type of game that I'm going to use to try and get people into Arkham Horror. It's got a good narrative to the game. There's lots of things happening. There's lots of quests you can go on. And the one main reason I chose this as my game of the year is the absolutely brilliant game that myself, Ronan and Steve, who was one of our contributors for our Essen episodes, one of our roving reporters, had at this game when we got absolutely decimated. Absolutely decimated. I think we may have closed one gate the whole game. And the fact that we all had such a good time playing a game that was just beating us round the head. I think that just shows that this game's a winner. What do you think, Ronan? Probably my favourite thematic storytelling game, Sean. We've banged on about it much more than Patch History. <laughs> uh, um, it can run long. It can be wildly random. It can be really tough, but every turn is quick. It's easy to teach, if slightly more tricky to run. It's exactly what I want in a Fantasy Flight Games game. It's a whole experience. I love it. You guys know I love it. But some of those cards in it need to be ripped up. Okay, Ronan. I like like the fanfare. My number one new to me game in 2014 was Race for the Galaxy. Another game I had never played before this year. Shockingly, given that I love card games, I love card games in which cards combo. It's a 2007 game from Tom Lehman. It is a classic. It is very highly ranked on BGG. And I don't know how I avoided it. 
it's a science fiction game in which you are developing a civilization by settling planets and building developments. You are going to be possibly trading, possibly conquering, exploring the deck in order to find the cards to combo together. You can be scoring points at the end by from the trades you've made throughout the game collected or from the developments you've made or the planets you've settled and also certain developments give you special points. Wow. It's got strategic width in terms of it genuinely plays in under 30 minutes and still strategic it's amazing the bam for your buck is incredible for the amount of time played for the decisions made how you can go the fact that you set your hand of cards up in certain ways and then as you get more cards you have to make culls here and there make a decision in which way you're going to be the fact that you continue to learn i've played over 20 games this year of it i'm learning constantly what's in the deck how cards work, trying different strategies out, the fact that I feel like I'm constantly getting better, the fact that I'm starting to be able to read other players, the key mechanism in it is that there are five possible phases, but phases will only happen if one of the players is selected for that phase to happen in this round. And then once you start being able to try and see what other players are doing and know what their cards are, you can get an appreciation of what you think they're going to do so you can latch onto their choices so you don't have to waste your choice on triggering that phase. There are four expansions available for it. I have played the cards in expansion one, the cards in Alien Artifacts. I actually learned the game with the Alien Artifacts, the fourth expansion cards, in with base deck, which was, it made a difference to me because I didn't know anything, but I haven't played with the Orb. Maybe I will never will. Controversial expansion there. It's brilliant from two to four players. I've been playing it two-player a lot. It is like gaming crack. It is just one more game, one more game, one more game. I only started playing it really in the summer. Just, It's fantastic. It has become one of my favourite games very, very quickly. Brilliant game. Race for the Galaxy. Sean? I concur, Ronan. It is a fantastic game. I've just got a couple of slight issues. Well, not even slight issues. Just slight warnings for people who want to get into this game. There is a barrier to entry in this game. It's quite a hard game to learn. And I think once you do pick it up and once you do learn it, you can't have to keep plugging away until it's it's stuck. If you pick this game up once, leave it down, play it again three months later, it's all going to be gone. You're not going to remember it. You're going to have to learn it again. So it's not really one that you can pick off the shelf once in a while until you have thoroughly explored it. And if you like games with player interaction, I'm not sure that there's a lot of player interaction in this. Yes, you've got the action <laughs> selection. What? <laughs> <laughs> You've got the action selection, as you said, Ronan, and that's how you interact with everybody. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I just think it's something that people should bear in mind. I think it's a fantastic game. Cool. Yeah, it is a fantastic game. You're right. What I'm (laughs) going to focus on is it's a fantastic game. So those are our choices for the best new-to-us games in 2014. Stay tuned. Coming up is our competition. And then we're talking about our Out of the Dust games, our best games published in 2014, and then what we are looking forward to in 2015. So, as Ronan mentioned at the end of our top five new to us from 2014 we have a competition it's for a copy of the game Hoyuk and Ronan's got all the details yes indeed Mage Company have kindly donated a brand new copy of Hoyuk for one of our listeners now Hoyuk is a tile laying civilization building game there have been two expansions come out for it 
Obstacles, and currently on Kickstarter is Anatolia. Hoyuk Anatolia adds a bunch of new mechanisms to Hoyuk, including using those water features on the board, artifacts, and different ways for each civilization to score points at the end of the game. Please do head over to Kickstarter and check out their campaign. And don't forget that Anatolia will be available through to its wide release in the summer for pre-order on www.magecompany.com. Now, in Obstacles, Hoyuk had a mechanism of catastrophes added to the game. And we're asking you, if you could add one catastrophe to a Civ building game, what would that catastrophe be and what effect would it have in-game? The only stipulation we're saying is you cannot use one of the catastrophes that's already included in Hoyuk. If you head over to BGG, have a look at the rulebook, you'll see which catastrophes are already included in the game, come up with something different from that, come up with something innovative, funny, in some way is going to improve a Civ building game, send it to us. Now, the email address is different to our usual email address. It's thegamepitscompetition at gmail.com. That's thegamepitscompetition at gmail.com. And as a way of thanks to Mage Company for offering this, we'll ask you to go and have a look at their Kickstarter page for Hoyuk Anatolia. That is running until February the 10th. If by any chance you don't make it in time by February the 10th, then they are going to be offering pre-orders of Hoyuk Anatolia on their own website which is www.magecompany.com thank you and we look forward to reading your submissions the best and finest of which will be read out after february the 28th which is the competition deadline so please email us at thegamepitcompetition.com with what catastrophe would you add to a civilization game and what effect would it have you can't use any that are currently in hoyuk and we are looking for the funniest the best the brightest the most innovative to win a brand new copy of hoyuk shipped anywhere in the world from us and mage company to you cheers and good luck Okay, so next up, we are going to revisit games that we haven't played in quite a while that have sprung back at us this year, and we've realised actually we really enjoy them, and we've forgotten all about them. It's our Out of the Dust segment, and Rona's going to kick us off. My Out of the Dust this year is a fantastic game, as you'd expect. It is Brass from Martin Wallace. Now, this is one of the first heavy games I played when I was coming back into gaming back in 2007 and this game took hold of our little group of players at the time a bunch of my friends and we played it for a few weeks in a row loved it people got good at it competent at it really learned it and then for whatever reason we just moved on I think we just started exploring lots of different games at that time because we were most of us pretty new to the hobby and since then despite attempting to I had not played it in something like six years until this year when I managed to get three games of it in and I just I can't believe how long it's taken me to get that game back on the table and how much I enjoyed it when I did get it back on the table I think it's one of those things that Brass was so important to me as sort of a gamer and coming in and realising these deep games and, and how much they can exercise your brain without taking 10 hours at, within a limited playtime. Admittedly, it's like still two or three hours, but you know, you're not spending all weekend playing this game. That It was almost like going back to a favourite book from your childhood. You don't want to read it again in case it's not as good as you remember it was. Oh, well, this one was because I remembered it to be. I shouldn't have worried. It feels like a modern game. It feels like modern games, in fact, have been catching up with this game 
that's how good I believe the design was. I think this is from the golden period of Martin Wallace games. And this, for me, is his high point. In terms of hand management of the cards you're given, in the flexibility both in strategy and tactics you can employ in the game, the fact that you're managing the in-game economy, how brutal it is... The fact that you can go for a complicated strategy or actually quite a simple strategy and they can both be affected depending upon what everyone else is doing and appreciating the actions that everyone else is doing and making sure you're there for opportunities and I'm having to make a decision about do I change tack partway through here because what I'm doing is kind of set direction but it looks like that direction might actually be more worthwhile to me. You know, shipping that or, or creating opportunities for coal looks better to me now than sort of the cotton I was going for it wherever it might be within the game but the ability to be flexible and should I or shouldn't I great decisions to make it's really difficult to think of anything in the same category as game that I enjoy as much as this in this tight theme which you think could be kind of fairly structured and scripted in what you can do, but actually with the hand play and just playing with other players, every game develops differently. Throwing together a chain of actions doesn't make a game deep. This makes a game deep in that it constantly changes, that you have to adjust without adjusting too much. You have to play off the other players. I just love it. I think it's a fantastic game. I'm so glad that I got to play it again this year. I, I promise myself it will not be another six years before I play it again. So my choice is Brass. Yeah, Ronan, I, I completely agree. I probably played it myself at that time when you played it, or shortly after, with Steve, who we've mentioned before in, in the episode. It's a typical Wallace affair with loans coming out your eyes. I think when I first happened across it, it really did look quite tedious, I didn't really understand what Euro games were about, but it was very interesting, and I think it made me start to look at other Euro games. It was definitely my first sort of medium to heavy Euro game, and probably the one that started me off on that particular path, though. A very strong choice there, Ronan. I don't know that my choice is as strong in terms of the length of time that's gone between me playing it, but... It's a game that I'd kind of forgotten about, even though it was in the very first episode of the Game Pit, way back in March 2013. It's D-Day But Dice. don't go back and listen to that, by the way. <laughs> it was, that one wasn't too bad. It was episode two, Ronan, that was awful. That was a low point. It was a low point. It's D-Day Dice, as I said, uh, the 2012 release from Valley Games. It's a one-to-four-player dice-rolling cooperative set in World War Two. And I'd just never seen anything like it when I first played this game. I think myself and Ronan actually bought it for each other for Christmas in 2012. Both of us, so we both got a copy from the other one. And first off, it was a World War II game with dice, and I was a bit wary about it, but they handled the subject with maturity and compassion, so that eased that fear. There was an excellent build quality to everything. Everything was really looked into and everything was thought about. It's a genuine co-op. You really need to work together in this game to win it. And, of course, I'm always going to love the random theatre of dice rolling. Why is it out of the dust? Because I played it a bunch of times when we first got it that Christmas and shortly after, up to the March time when we did our first episode. And then I kind of forgot about it. And it was recently, sitting around at Ronan's house, and we were just looking around thinking, what can we play? What can we play? We need something that we know how to play, because we didn't feel like learning anything. 
that was that a little bit of fun and we we could just get into it immediately and we looked up and saw D-Day Dice I said come on let's give it a go and we both thoroughly enjoyed it again didn't have to think about how to play it it stuck in the mind it's very simple very involving and there's a sense of elation when you finally complete an objective we find it incredibly difficult some people say it's too easy I don't know where they're coming from but just a good all-round game for me Ronan yeah, basically we played the bejesus out of it and then forgot about it, didn't we? It's, it's had a real sort of up and down with us. You're right, we did remember how much fun it is. We have to work together, we had to communicate, we had to have a plan, we had to adjust when things go wrong, we had to, sort of, oh, we really need to go in this direction, oh, crikey, look at that roll. Okay, now we really need to go in this direction, choosing the right specialist to help the other person out at the right time, seeing which course you're going to go up the map, therefore adjusting what you took, in terms of how that was going to affect you going forward it is quick but it's not a brainless dice chucker so many games out there are just chucking dice and they're just Yahtzee or something like Yahtzee and you're not really making decisions the most you might be doing is pushing your luck well in this I don't think pushing your luck is even in there you don't dare to push your luck because it's so tight just a really strong good game i get why you're a bit dodgy that it's out of the dust but in terms of us personally it really really is because it was right up there getting played all the time and then not played at all and then yeah dragged it back down that shelf and fell in love with it all over again i think it was a good choice sean oh well thank you ronan <laughs> okay so we're gonna move on to the big one the top five from 2014 yeah So the next person to join us here to have a look back at 2014, the best and the worst, is friend Paul. Hello, Paul, and welcome into the Game Pit. Hello, Ronan. Thanks. Uh, it's nice to be here. It's nice to have you. General thoughts from you with regards to 2014 and gaming. I had a really good 2014. I was thinking about it back sort of when I was preparing for the episode, and I don't know that there were that many standout games that have sort of gone into my list of, you know, greatest games ever. But I've played a lot of games over the course of the year and just basically really enjoyed myself. Had a nice time with friends and continued to enjoy gaming. It's nice to hear a happy, contented man on the game pit. We don't have many of them. <laughs> okay. So while you're in a good mood, we're going to put you in a bad mood. Paul, what was your biggest disappointment of a release in 2014? My biggest disappointment was, was the game Robin by Frederick Morrison and published by Flatline Games. The game sees you playing one of Robin Hood's Merry Men charged with helping the cause by completing seven missions. Missions such as robbing travellers, delivering messages or gathering information. Only you're competing with the other merry men and Robin only really loves you if you specialise in one type of mission. So the theme doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny, but hey, it's a card game with pretty art, so I'll kind of give it a pass on that. Gameplay-wise, it's set collection with a twist. There's a track on the game board and your position on it governs the amount of cards you draw and the cards you draw act both as mission types you're trying to collect and also allow you to alter the positions on the track. For example, you may draw cards you know, allows you to move one player forward two spaces and two players back one. On your turn, you select a card to trade. Everyone else decides what, if anything, to offer in return and the active player will then choose the deal they like the best. Once the trade's done, each player in the trade moves the tokens on the board based on the card they've just received and then adds that card to their hand, which will also form one of the set of seven they're trying to collect. As soon as someone's at a set of seven of the same mission type, they win. So it's all about Robin and his selective love. 
Um, yeah. What was it about Robin before it was released that had you most excited about it? Now, the designer is Frederick Moyerson, who's designed Saboteur, Nuns on the Run, Ninja Legend of the Scorpion Clan, and Bacchus Banquet, which is best forgotten. <laughs> was that what had you thinking this might be a fun game? Not entirely. I was lukewarm on Saboteur when I played it, but I've heard good things about Nuns on the Run. A couple of our friends, who's normally like similar games to me, had said good things from it from their first few plays. So I kind of went into it with relatively high hopes that it was going to be a good, entertaining, quick game. Unfortunately, there was one mechanic, or should I say one card, that completely destroyed the game as a fun experience. My first and only play of this, I was doing okay, I had a bit of a plan, and then Bosch, another player, swapped hands with me. And because he's not, oh. he's been, <laughs> and because he's been planning to swap from the start, I go from being a couple of cards of winning to having absolutely nothing, effectively out of the game, but not actually out of the game. I get to sit there for another thirty minutes waiting for the thing to end. <laughs> I wasn't interested in this game until you just told me that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, was it worse because it happened to me? Yeah, of course it was. But it shouldn't really be able to happen to anyone. There's no way to protect yourself from it. The okay, only... so what we get is your Sour Grapes Award. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The only sensible way to play is to do things completely at random until someone plays the card, and then you can start playing the game. <laughs> That's a glowing endorsement yeah. for Robin. <laughs> okay, I mean, so everyone apart from one person might enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I was thinking about it, and I think, you know, I don't want to be too harsh. I was thinking, would it be better if you just removed the card? Probably, but there's a lot of other good games where you don't have to worry about fixing them after you've bought them. So I don't think it's worth wasting time on things that don't quite hit the mark first time. Like it, harsh judge. We applaud that round here. So moving on to something that you did enjoy in 2014, what for you was the best expansion to be published this year? This one was easy. My choice for the best expansion of 2014 is probably my choice for best expansion ever. And it's Coup Reformation by Ricky Tata. This is published by a number of different people worldwide, but probably the easiest to get hold of, if not necessarily the prettiest, is the indie boards and card version. Technically, it came out in 2013, but it was only really widely available in 2014. So uh, I'm claiming that it's a reasonable choice. In short, Coup's a bluffing game where each player is trying to kill everyone else. The players are dealt two cards and on their turn they perform either a basic action or a special action of one of the cards. The twist is that you don't have to actually have a card to use its action. You can lie. And if you get away with it, that's brilliant. But if someone calls your bluff, you lose one of your cards, lose both and you're out. The base game alone is great, but the expansion makes it even better. Reformation essentially adds teams, sort of. Everyone starts out as either a loyalist or a reformist, alternating around the table. And if you're performing an attacking action, then you have to target a member of the opposing team. The key mechanic that makes this all work is that you can use your turn to change sides or to change someone else's side for them. It's still every man for himself in terms of winning. And if everyone ends up on the same team, you can attack whoever you want. What it adds to the game is more tactical options. If one player has the money to instantly kill someone, you can change their team or change them to yours. It doesn't sound like much, but it adds a lot. As the number of players on each team becomes uneven, it gets really important to be on the right side at the right time. As I said, I think it does everything the expansion should. It adds a few cards and I think three new rules, but really ups the level of tactical play in the game. Coup has been a huge hit amongst several of my gaming groups. Coup Reformation has been a big hit with them. Coup is such a huge hit from such a small publishing house. I mean, the Mama Games, no one knew them at all. What for you is the key to the secret of the success of Coup? I think people like lying to each other. 
the game's fast, aggressive and fun. It gives you, as I said before, really interesting tactical decisions to make. And it's all over in about 20 minutes. So you can play it multiple times in a row or use it as a filler between bigger games. I just think it's really clever. It's really tight. It works. There's no fiddly rules, exceptions or anything like that. It's just a good idea done well. Okay, cool. Well, I played lots of Coup. I'm not his biggest fan, but, you know, I can understand people like it, and I've still never played with Coup Reformation. It, would it be the expansion which changes my mind? I love it, but it, in a way it adds more of the same, not of the same mechanics, but of the same feel to the game. You're still trying to outbluff each other. I know you don't really get on with it, and it is a game where you can get in a situation where you're going to lose no matter what happens. The expansion does reduce that somewhat. It gives you more options in those difficult situations. So it might tip it over the edge from being a game that you kind of tolerate to a game that you really enjoy. <laughs> tolerate. <laughs> anyway, Paul, what was the best game that you played this year that was new to you but wasn't actually published in 2014? This one's a bit of a blast from the past and probably reveals that I don't really have the authority to be giving my comments on games on any sort of public forum. <laughs> we have no authority around it. <laughs> but best new to me was Time's Up Title Recall. It was first published in 2008 by R&R Games, and I think it's still widely available. For those that don't know, Time's Up is a party game. Players split into teams and then dealt a number of cards that will each have the name of a movie, book, song, that kind of thing on them. They then have some time to memorise the cards and the game begins game's played over three rounds in the first round you're describing the movie or whatever on the card to your team without using any of the words from the title and they have to guess what the correct answer is the second and third rounds use the same cards as the first round but your team only gets one guess per clue in the second round you're only allowed to say one word as a description and in the third you can't say anything it's essentially charades the winning team is the one with the most correct answers over three rounds and that's it cool and why was it such a hit with you why did you enjoy it so much actually it's a great party game on the face of it, as I sort of alluded to earlier, it's just a mashup of charades and another game, Articulate, which I think is a sort of a mass market game, which is also a game I enjoy. But the thing that sort of makes this one stand out is the variety of what you're doing round to round. And the memory element is really key. After the first round, you don't really have to know what Waiting for Godot or Jumping Jack Flash are. You just remember what someone else said about them in the last round. And that really opens it up and it makes it fun and involving for a wide range of ages and interests. We played this at a party at Nathan's house before Christmas and some of his guests brought their son, who I think was sort of nine or ten. And he was just as involved as all the 30, 40 year olds in the room. Just what you need at that kind of party, basically. Are you a big party game fan? And as well as Times Up Total Recall, any other good party games out there you would recommend? don't know if I'm the biggest party game fan. If I'm just with gamers, in inverted commas, probably want to play something proper. But in the right situation, yeah, I love a good party game. I'm a bit picky. I think there has to be a game element for me. So I mentioned Articulate, which is sort of essentially the first round of, of Title Recall, but for the entire game, it's not as good as Title Recall, but it, it's a strong mass market party game. Things I don't like are things like Telestrations. I know it's really popular, but it just doesn't do it for me. It's sort of more of an activity than the game. It's just a sort of method for people to prove how zany or inappropriate they can be. And if that's what I'm looking for, I'd rather go to the pub for a drink. <laughs> Can't believe that the man who just supported Koo is now talking about proper games. <laughs> anyway. Koo's proper. <laughs> Which game had you not played for a while but made a comeback out of the dust on your shelf this year? Okay, so hopefully this will get your uh, Eurogamer approval. My out of the dust game for 2014 was Glory to Rome. This is by Carl Chuddock and Ed Carter, the credited designers. It's published in 2005 initially by the now defunct Cambridge Game Factory. And I think we'll get more into that later on. It's a deep, complex game, and it's almost impossible to give a brief summary in two minutes that does it justice. 
We're going to try. But yeah. <laughs> so here I go. Utes play Roman senators attempting to gain the highest reputation by helping out the most in the effort to rebuild Rome following the fire. It's a card game and the cards in your hand represent the actions you can take, the buildings you can build, the resources you use to build them and the points you gain by doing so. The key to winning is making the right choices when it comes to which of its possible purposes you use each card for. The buildings you build give you ridiculously powerful special abilities. Each on its own would be game-breaking, but together they sort of balance each other out most of the time. It's engaging, innovative, and it always makes you feel like you're making progress right up until the point someone else steamrolls to victory. I really like this game, and I'm going to try and get it played more in 2015. Glory to Rome has got a checkered history for it, for those who don't know. It first came out, as you said, in 2005, and it had interesting artwork on it it was very I think, bright i think you're being polite there and <laughs> we'll stick with the word interesting for now bright cartoony definitely divided opinion then in 2011 it was put up on kickstarter and there was a complete design overhaul for it and it's called the black box edition so it went live on august the 1st in 2011 and then there was a big long disaster going forward which basically bankrupt the company in the end and when the game came out it had cars that smelled it had mistakes it had bubbly box so people have waited a long time to got their product some people i'm not sure has everyone got their product yet even i don't know that they have i mean i'm luckily i was sucked in the redesign is very pretty i can't remember the uh, the graphic designer's name now properly i think it's heiko is and he's on bgg as as heiko He's done a few other of his own print and play game designs and they're worth checking out. He's a really talented graphic designer, in my opinion. But yeah, it looked beautiful. I was sucked in. It was $30, free shipping worldwide. Really good deal. If you're mm. willing. And, it came, <laughs> and it came with the free two and a half years of entertaining arguments on BGG. Yeah, so <laughs> it didn't go that well, the whole Kickstarter release, and it ended up de facto killing Cambridge Games Factory. This disaster around the black box, one of the notorious Kickstarter failures, has it killed this game going forward? Are we ever going to see it again? Have you got any hope for it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a case of any press is good case. The Kickstarter, as we've just described, was undoubtedly a disaster. But I don't think that anyone's ever said that the gameplay is anything other than excellent. I think a properly nice addition by someone who's even half an idea how to run a business, this game could get the widespread love it deserves. New people could get a great game, and me and the other black box edition owners We'll probably need new replacements by that point if the rate at which mine's disintegrating is anything to go by. Oh dear. <laughs> the other component's not even standing up. Despite the fact I love the game, I probably paid my copy sort of four or five times and the cards are kind of delaminating is the proper word for it, where they're kind of peeling off into their component parts. A lot of fuss has been made the the cards are black and so sort of chipping on the edges will they get little white marks on the edges and a lot of fuss has been made by that by by people who obviously take it very seriously and kind of card count and know what's coming up in the deck. But for me, that's not an issue. But the fact the cards are peeling into three is more upsetting. Okay. So, I mean, I've only played Glory Throne once, which is definitely not enough to get your head around the game. But I hope it does get picked up by a publisher after the stink has died down even more now, after coming up to four years on from the disastrous Kickstarter campaign, and someone picks it up and releases it with nice artwork and decent quality components and doesn't break their company doing it. Let's hope it's not a cursed game. It still feels like fresh and different. There are not a lot of other things out there like it. The only things that are similar are Carl Chuddock's other designs, which kind of borrow a lot from Glory to Rome. 
it's well worth a place in most people's collections i would have thought it's just a shame that it's it's never quite got that proper big company releasing it who can do it well so talking about big releases with huge print runs what was your favorite game which was actually published in 2014 paul my favourite game of 2014 was Patch History. I said at the start of the show that 2014 was a year that didn't have many standout games, but this one is the exception. In Patch History, you're playing a civilization which develops over a number of ages, and you're kind of appropriating famous events, people and buildings from history and weaving them into your own nation. The game incorporates a number of different mechanics. At the start of each turn, there's an auction for tiles. It's got quite a nasty auction mechanic that if you're outbid, you cannot reduce your bid. You can bid on something else, but if there's one thing you want and you go big for it and don't get it, you end up spending a lot of money on something you didn't want. I was worried initially that that was too much and and would really put people off, but actually, for some reason, you don't seem to mind it. Speak for yourself. I've, I've often cursed the game for that. It's a lot to take, but I think over the course of the game, it seems to balance out. Once tiles are won, they must be incorporated into your civilization. This bit's a bit of a kind of tile laying or mini game where you've got to partially overlap some of the tiles you've previously won. The new tile gains you new abilities, resources or points, but loses you anything from the other tiles that has been covered up. You then gain resources and spend action points to trade, go to war, build buildings or gain points from your wonders or famous people that you've already incorporated. Rinse and repeat for four turns per age, and there's three ages in the game. And you'd really get a nice feel of building up and becoming more powerful as the game goes on. It was in my personal choices of best games somewhere in this episode. So I love it. Absolutely think it's a fantastic game. But I gave this to Sean a while ago, and he still hasn't got his copy out, and he hasn't played it. And it is a big undertaking to learn and run. There's a lot going on. Can you just chat about the barriers to entry in terms of learning learning and running? And also, what are you going to say to Sean when he rejoins us that's going to convince him to crack the wrapping and get his version to the table? For Sean, I can see where his problems lie. There's a lot of upfront rules learning. I think... We were all really excited about this, and you, myself, and Puria, are kind of independently of each other, all bought the game at the same time. The first game you two played without me and did a decent job, but then with me coming later, having read the rulebook independently, we realised that there was one quite major rule that had been forgotten. And I think it is that kind of game where it's probably going to be two or three times through before you really are sure you're playing it properly. But actually, once you've got it down, it's reasonably straightforward. It's a deep game. It's got lots to explore. It's going to take three hours plus with four players, but there's very little downtime. I mean, it's sort of incredible that it takes so long, but you don't ever feel like you're waiting around for somebody else to do something. A lot of the phases are simultaneous and you feel involved with everything that's going on. There's loads of interaction with other players. You can go to war or you can take the Jacob approach. It's another of our friends. And you can fly under the radar for the whole game, doing your own thing. No one thinks you're winning and then you win it by a mile. Um, That's Jacob in all games. Yeah, yeah. It's just the Jacob (laughs) approach to gaming. We need to really get over our mental block about that. (laughs) It's definitely the most innovative game I've played this year, and it's well worth checking out if you're a fan of heavy Euros or civ building games. I 100% agreement, and listen elsewhere in this episode to hear more of my thoughts and Sean's thoughts with regards to the game. So can I, sorry to jump in, Ronan, can I kind of break the rules here and have an honourable mention for 2014 as well? Yeah, but only because I broke the rules in our bit. Go on. <laughs> My honourable mention is a game I've only just played, but I know it's something that's been mentioned on the show before, and it's The Ravens of Theory Shashiri. Oh, that's also getting mentioned elsewhere in this episode. Is it? Carry on, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you play this with a good-looking and intelligent young man. We had a, we had a very romantic evening, the two of us, <laughs> a few weeks ago. I don't think Roz has quite forgiven me for that yet. Um, 
So this game, as I'm sure you've described, has a mental theme. I can't even really remember what it was. It's something about one of you's in a coma, the other one's communicating with them through their dreams. It's brilliant stuff. The reason I love it so much, it's a two-player game. It's completely asymmetrical. The two players are playing different but equally interesting games. You're setting each other puzzles, essentially, to solve. It's got a similar feel to Hanabi, but it doesn't suffer from the same kind of weirdness regarding what you're allowed to say and the communication into Hanabi all feels a bit false and forced. This just kind of works really naturally. A really interesting two-player game, not like anything else, and definitely worth checking out. I think it's a really good game to play in couples if you can... Uh, if you've got a you strong relationship. Face. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, thing with it, and I, I do talk elsewhere in the episode about it, is one player holds all the information and they're trying to through limited communication, get the communication to the other player who has to do most of the actions. And that can be really, really frustrating on either side. But it's kind of fun frustration. It's that kind of like, oh, ah, don't do that kind of thing, but not be able to say it. I, I really enjoyed it. Stop playing cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't play too many cards, guys. That's, that's my, my pro tip. The sort of last thing to say is, I think for the full effect, it must be played with a Studio Ghibli soundtrack in the background. <laughs> that's a nice touch. Okay, so we've covered 2014 thoroughly there, and you've been in agreement with me a couple of times, which is unusual on this show. So that's the reason I've been allowed on. <laughs> yeah, because I have to put up with Sean and his plastic usually. Going forward into 2015, you're not going to get no arguments on this front either. What game were you most looking forward to that's scheduled to come out this year? My game I'm most looking forward to in 2015 is the Game of Thrones card game reboot for Fantasy Flight. So it's a reboot of the pre-existing Fantasy Flight game. It's an LCG, meaning that whilst you can play it with just the base set, you're probably going to want to sink a significant amount of money into it so that you can have a large pool of cards with which to construct different decks. And I'm really excited. We have discussed this offline previously, and Paul and I have committed to start collecting the Game of Thrones reboot and build decks and be able to play it, what have you, because we both have played the original version. I mean, the CCG came out 2003, I think, a long time ago. It got rebooted into a living card game, which means that it gets expanded with expansions every month, and you know what cards are going to be in there, and they're based around six monthly themes, and I am really, really excited about the Game of Thrones reboot. Although I'm a bit sad that the hundreds and hundreds of pounds I've put into the Game of Thrones card game as it is now are possibly going to be, well, I can still play with those cards, right? But they're going to be a little bit out of date. I need to get some plays in now. Anyway, moving on to, have you collected any other collectible card games or living card games? And in terms of Game of Thrones, why Game of Thrones and not some of the others that are coming out, the latest Warhammer Invasion or some of the even examples from other companies? I haven't got into a CCG or LCG before. But I do play a lot of Hearthstone on the iPad, and I really enjoyed the deck building aspect of that. Sort of got into that at the beginning of last year. I've had a couple of plays, as you mentioned, of the previous version of Game of Thrones, and it really sparked my imagination. The first time, I was Martell, and I spent the entire game trying to get some amazing combo with the Red Viper working. I didn't, and I lost horribly, but the mechanics seemed really interesting, and it sort of made me want to come back to explore it more. The Game of Thrones license also helps. I'm a big fan, and getting to play as one of the houses adds to the fun for me. Might limit my choices slightly. I don't really fancy playing Lannister or Baratheon, and if it's true to the books, I presume that the Starks are destined to lose every game. <laughs> Only if they're complete idiots, like in the books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's going to be a lot of points where he's like, oh, they look like they're doing really well, and oh my god, I didn't see that coming. Do you think there'll be games in which the other players are telling Ned that what he's doing is making him lose the game, and he just <laughs> carries on anyway because he's so noble and thick? 
Spoilers, there might be people out there who haven't seen Series 1. Oh, come on, seen their books, right? <laughs> 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 the theme definitely helps and in terms of the gameplay the thing about this is it's really massively interactive and the players drive what happens you decide who you attack you decide who you're going to kill every time you do attack you leave yourself slightly more vulnerable to being attacked there can be no runaway leader because eventually you will beat that person down they can only make three attacks and again it leaves them vulnerable and if everyone else plays well you start knocking them back and that is part of the vine for it it feels like the political vine really for the iron throne in the books that some people are up some people are down there can be changes of fortune and you, you really say that, to... but if my red viper strategy had come off i'd have been you know, it would have been perfect un- look wait un- wait till book six and seven you'll see man. <laughs> dawn are coming trust me inside information yeah. <laughs> that is definitely a spoilers <laughs> Spoilers to books that aren't out yet. Um, <laughs> I, I'm super excited as well, mate. I'm thoroughly with you there for Game of Thrones. Anything else you want to mention going forward in 2015? I think my girlfriend will never listen to this, but just in case she does, I promise not to spend too much money on Heroescape, Game of Thrones, <laughs> the card game, and Star Wars. It's my lot for collectible games. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've not got enough X-Wing yet. No, well, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. There's been a few more purchases since she came around. Oh, no. <laughs> If Ravens of Three Sashiri ever comes a living card game, you're in big trouble. <laughs> but I needed I would, an orange raven. I would buy plastic raven models for that game. Oh dear. All right, before we commit you to any more spending, thank you very much for joining the Game Pit. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And Thanks for hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Okay, as I said, we are going on to the big one now. This is the top five games from each of us that were released in 2014. And Ronan's going to kick us off with his number five. Okay, so my number five might be a surprise choice if you listen to our post-Essen review show. It's from Bruno Cathala and Charles Chevalier, and it is Abyss. Now, at the time we did our post-Essen review, I had not played the game, but we had reports from Puri and Lloyd on it, and they were not fans. And I admit this might be a slightly a backlash to the backlash against the beast when it was released with just the covers and the brooding art. Everyone was expecting something deep and awesome because of how great it looked. And it is not deep. It's not the big, huge strategy game people, some people were hoping for. But it is a really, really good game. I was taken down in my expectations by the reports I received initially with regards to Abyss. And I was really, really pleasantly surprised when I played it. I was kind of expecting a Five Tribes and it would be all dress and, and no underwear, but it's not that at all. It looks great. I think the looking good helps like it does for any game. It's also, though, mechanically a quick interactive set collection game on which the set collection works on three levels. You are dealing out cards which are then made available to the other players around the table in which they can buy the cards off you before you get a chance to take them. So there's an issue there of pushing your luck. Cards you don't take out in the road get put down, become available again to other players. They build up in stacks and players are able to take a whole stack without doing that, that push your luck mechanism. You're collecting these cards which are your allies. You use your allies then to recruit lords which will give you certain powers and points and the ability then to to take control of locations which is the third area of set collection and the locations are basically going to score you points something you've done previously in the game for certain allies you've collected as you collect lords or for certain types of lords you have because they come in different sets and the sets correspond to the allies and it all kind of ties together in this triple layer of set collection 
it's not that deep, but it's certainly not brainless either. I think it's interesting that push your luck. There are ways of chaining together special powers. God, I said about the components, it's just worth saying again. The artwork is fantastic. The game looks beautiful, and that helps so much. It's a great gateway, sort of next step sort of a game. Forget about the initial hype. Forget then about the negative backlash and accept that this is a really good, more casual end of the market game, which won't take longer than an hour, has got some interesting bits to it, has got interaction in what cards you take, in what people are building towards, in the fact that you can slightly screw each other over very slightly, but it, enough is there to make it interesting. It's not multiplayer solitaire by any means, very little downtime. It's just a good, solid effort, and that's abyss. Sean? Yeah, far be it for me to disagree with uh, Mr. Lloyd himself, but he's wrong. Although there are some aspects that I have to sully myself and actually kind of agree with him. But in general, I think the, the game is good. It's fine. It's, I don't think it's great. I don't think it's brilliant, but I think it's fine. It was enjoyable. It made sense. I kind of felt like you did as the coming into it. Oh, God, what's this going to be? But... Actually, yeah, it was okay. It was much better than I was expecting it to be after both Lloyd and Poirier kind of panned it. Now, the bit that I kind of agree with Lloyd is in the thematic sense. When he made the point that he didn't really know what the different cards represented and he didn't really care. He just knew that, that was the seahorses did something and the clams did another thing. Where in the game, they're supposed to be like farmers and warriors or whatever they are. I kind of felt that as well. I, they didn't really click for me. I didn't really think the seahorses were farmers or the clams were whatever they're supposed to be. It just didn't click for me thematically in that sense. I don't really understand this. And you're not the first person to say it to me. The farmers don't have many powers, but score you lots of points and chain together with locations which would make sense for farmers to chain together. The warriors all have effects which are negative to the other players. They take away an ally or they take away a pearl or they make recruitment orders more expensive. The politicians all have ones which are to do with control. And then sort of the magic using ones, the jellyfish ones, have kind of diff powers that break the game somewhere, break the rules somehow. They, all their powers are thematic. The artwork is thematic. The effect they have in the game is thematic. I don't understand what people would expect. It just didn't click with me. I get that things sort of worked with other cards and I can see like certain of the symbols worked with certain of the lords got that but it didn't dawn on me that I was picking a farmer card and that was a farmer lord it, it just happened to me that they worked together it just didn't click I don't know what's there but for me it just didn't sit Right. I, I think that in subsequent plays, the theme has got stronger. In that, when I've seen how the different powers link together, not hugely, I'm not going to defend it too much. They've started to go, oh, that location is called that, that lord is called that, and they work together. That kind of makes sense. Okay, so Crabs yeah. as the warriors, they've got big claws. Jellyfish are a bit magical and spooky. <laughs> Squids <laughs> are a bit slimy, they're the politicians. <laughs> You're pushing it now. You're pushing it. Yeah, I am. Really. Okay, but anyway. It's a good game. It is a decent game. I wouldn't say it's a great game, but it's a decent game, and I had fun playing it. So, what's your number five, mate? Number five again, Ronan, is a game we talked about in our Essen special, and straight hot out of Essen is the Ancient World from Red Raven Games, designed and illustrated by Ryan Laucat, which is quite important in this game. 
it is a 2-4 worker placement game with some hand management and set collection. We've talked about it before, so I'm going to go really quickly through what the game does. You have various strengths of workers. There are places on the board that if you put a low-level worker, somebody has to place a, a worker of increased strength to. So a number one must be increased by a number two. And there's slight variances on that, but that's the general theme. You are basically defending your cities against these titans that are coming in. All the cards in it have little banners on them that work towards set collection points at the end of the game. Not a great overview, but if you go back to our Essen episode, we do talk about it in a lot more depth. What do I like about this game? Well, first off and foremost, and it just shows how shallow I am, the art in this game. Absolutely stunning. To the point where I would actually like to track down Mr. Lalcat and commission him to do a bit of what art. Easy now, easy now. Your court order is still in order. <laughs> Only till 2019, then they get to ask him again. <laughs> run, Ryan, run. <laughs> it's just such a beautiful, beautiful looking game. People have stopped us and said, like, is that a game mat or is it an actual game board? And are quite shocked what the answer is actually a game board. And shock, it actually is quite a good game. It works very well. It's very tight, very tense. Doesn't outstay its welcome. The criticisms of it could be it's a little bit mean, and it can be a little bit mean, but I quite like that, so a strong number five for me. And it was probably my number six, to be honest with you. Just it was right when I was thinking about it, its name was in there. Was it five or six? It doesn't make that much difference. But I think I saw yours, because you were going to say it, I was like, well, we can talk about it then. It's a great choice. It was right up there for me. Great looking, really tight game, plenty of options on what you can do, lots of interaction and screwage with each other. It really deserves to be widely played because I think Ryan Larkat's doing some interesting things with gaming. We are currently looking at 8 Minute Empire from him. You may well be hearing a review from that soon, so there's a little bit of a look ahead. And Sean, this is a fantastic choice. This one is. Oh, well, thank you again. This is getting very, very. It's Civil. not going to last. <laughs> it's not going to last, given that you've just brought a pack of nonsense to the table in your choice. <laughs> Number four, The Sublime. Could possibly have been even higher up. I'm not sure it deserves to be this low. The Ravens of Three Sahashri. This is from designer Kuro and from the publisher Manifest Destiny from Japan. It was published in Japan in 2013, but it was first available for us and in English in 2014 at Essen, which is why it's in this list. He let me get away with it amazingly. Ooh, it's the game that I previewed before Essen, which sounds absolutely mental. It's about a young girl who's had a very abusive life. and She escapes from that life, but her best friend dies during it. And then uh, she flips into a coma due to the trauma. Her boyfriend is a psychic detective, and he delves into her coma in an attempt to piece together her memories in order to put together the poem of her heart over three batches three rounds in order to help her recover all the while there are world-eating ravens attempting to pick apart her memories and destroy their attempts yeah that's that's the thing <laughs> what it really is <laughs> they're ravens not cuckoos <laughs> what it really is it is a fantastic communication game in which the communication you have is very limited I played this game yesterday with someone who hadn't played it before and they said to me exactly this comment I was going to make is the game it mostly reminds me of is Hanabi 
only with more layers with only two players, it's two player only, and you are less likely to have a clash of playing styles. Hanabi depends upon the group that you're playing and what rules you're allowed and how people pull faces. Obviously, much more intense because there's only two of you. What you're doing is the player who plays as uh, the boyfriend who is attempting to piece together the memory draws cards and then has to arrange them in certain patterns. He's attempting to, to put together certain numbers. The cards come in five colours and numbered from one to five. And he's put together certain blocks of numbers. He's attempting to create it so that at the end of each round where he's, he decides how many cards he draws, he lays them out. The player playing the young girl, Ren, takes one of the cards from this pattern, this memory that's been created, and adds it to the poem of her heart. And what colour it is and what number it is has different things. And she's trying to make a bad pattern of of numbers of uh, add up to seven and seven and seven and five and four lines of the poems. So she's trying to collect certain numbers, but she starts with face down cards and the other player doesn't know what face down cards are. And he's really trying to interpret what those cards are from what she's doing. Because at the end of the round, the memory can only have the colors in it off the colors of those four face down cards initially, which uh, probably doesn't make too much sense, but it's all about communicating by which card you take out what colours are hidden, what colours need to be there, and from clever play from the player playing the boy, putting together blocks of seven, trying to reveal certain information to him so that he can make certain decisions. Um, Hard to describe without playing the actual game. It's one of those games that as you play, it develops and you kind of get a feel to it because it's very different to other games and you start... I see, oh, that might mean this, might mean that. Interesting to be the boy when you've got to put the cards down because you're trying to fathom what's being communicated to you and you're working out the time because you don't start knowing nothing and all that's being happening is that you're being revealed information, so it feels quite constructive. Being the girl, being Ren, is really frustrating because you know everything and you can't communicate. You've got very limited communication with the other player who really is control of what's happening in the game. So you have all the information, they have all the control, and somehow through the very limited communication, you've got to try and tell them what they need to do with these cards. Just brilliant. <laughs> it's so confusing when, you, when you're the boy and then Ren takes a certain card and you think, that is counter to everything I had thought about this. I think that if you played in silence, that would be the perfect way of playing this game because it's almost inevitable that you're going to go, oh, or no, or look, look what I've done. Or in my case, quite often, stop drawing cards. Stop drawing cards. We don't need more cards. I do get quite worked up playing this game. It is brilliant. I actually, it should have been higher than four. I should have put higher up. It is a genuinely deductive game. Game, when you're playing as Feth on the detective side of it and a genuine limited communication game when you're playing as Ren on the, the other side as the girl who needs to have her poem made just so unusual so brilliant really really if you get a chance play it I'm coming at this from pure ignorance having never played it and probably never will play it but what are you on about it's just <laughs> pure Lunacy! Absolute lunacy! You said yourself, you basically have to cheat to stop people doing things. You tell them to stop drawing cards. Don't do that. Do this. No, 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 no. That's afterwards. That's all. Afterwards. What I would say is that you can't do it during the game, man. That would be like... Maybe I did in a couple of learning <laughs> But that is definitely cheating. But in between games, say to people, look, there's a pattern to this game. And because when you're 
playing as Rain, just them drawing cards can be like, no, stop, you're messing it up. It was okay. You get to a point where it's looking good. And I think as Feth, because you don't know anything, as the boy, you don't know anything, so that you're tempted to just draw loads of cards and bosh them out to try and get information. But it actually muddies the waters. There's a, a certain simplicity to communication where keeping things smaller and more simple makes it harder for the girl but easier to communicate oh it's, it's very difficult to describe you have to play it to see how that works but afterwards my god the conversations afterwards about why did you do that why 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 yeah i i, I did get overexcited yeah but mostly that's people <laughs> saying why did you take this rubbish out it's not right how can you say that you've never played it it is <laughs> genius it is such a good game. It's oh, it's just. I don't believe you. Brilliant. I straight up don't believe you. I think you're telling fibs. I'm straight up gonna make you play this. <laughs> We're gonna get physical over this situation. I cannot have your ignorance sullying my ears anymore. We are gonna play this game, and you are gonna be amazed at how good it is. Right, let's move on to something that makes a modicum of this, sense. This is gonna be in your top five new to me games in our next review show. Yeah, or not. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's awesome. Anyway, let me see what's coming up next. Oh, it's not a terrible choice. I can't sleep. Uh, uh, <laughs> so my number four choice is Greed from Queen Games, designed by the legendary Donald X. Vaccarino. Again, another one we've talked about, but this is a two to five card drafting hand management game. It is a game where you are a mobster, you're trying to bring cards into your tableau that earn you money, and, of course, screw over your opponents. It's a very, very interactive game with lots of comical screwage, and the comical is the bit that I like about this game. It's not just underhanded stuff. It's a real moment of comedy when someone plays one of those cards that basically drops everybody down to one card type or takes all their money off their cards or what have you. It's just a real fun game. It plays very quickly, really doesn't outstay its welcome, and it was my surprise hit of the year. After saying it was a trap in one of our Treasure Hunt episodes, Ronan... I bow to your greater knowledge of future hits. You said that this one was a hit all, all, all the way, and it was. I've got a pretty bad track record in this show. <laughs> there, so. it's, it's another good choice. It's maybe top. It's definitely top 20 for the year. Maybe maybe even top 10. I like it. I, you know I like drafting games, so predisposed to like it. It goes really quickly, which is definitely in its favour. There are some smart choices to make. It does force you to watch what the other players are doing. It is interactive. Cards interact in flexible ways with other players. Cards rely upon other players having a certain amount of holdings out or you being the leader in certain types of criminal businesses, whether it's you have most guns or you run the most adult institutions, whatever it may be, that, that then makes cards more effective. Getting the combos out is, is quite clever in the different gangsters. You might get a gangster out to be useful to you, and then you want to kill it before the end of the game because it becomes actually negative by the end of the game. In such a quick, fast-flowing game, yeah, it's a really good filler. It's worth having in any collection, really, to be honest with you, because it is a slightly different theme. It is smooth playing, it is quick, and it all works. Okay, I don't think there's a lot more to say about that. That was greed. And now on to Ronan's number three. It's been a long time since we talked about this one, Ronan. <laughs> we did, it was last episode. Although the way <laughs> we go, that literally could have been a long time. Could have been a year or two. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's 
going to back start again to the year. I've been ill, by the way. You can send all your sympathy towards me. Uh, it's Quartermaster General from Ian Brody and Greg Lee Games. Literally talked about it last episode, so no need to go on about it anymore. It's a team game. I love team games. They bring the best of cooperative games and competitive games together. It's really quick to play. It plays up to six players, and as six players, it just rattles along. You almost don't have enough time to think. Sometimes you have to go, whoa, this is a random which I need to think to play my one card, which is all you're going to do each game. Simple turns, simple plays of a card with big repercussions. You must have a strategy. You must then as I talked about earlier, also tactically adapt to what the other team are doing. You really should try and work in synergy with your two teammates. If you're playing with the full six, that is access to our allies. Just a fantastic game, which really deserves to get wider, wider, wider release, more buzz, more recognition. Two days ago, from when we were recording this, an expansion was put up on Kickstarter. Quartermaster General, Air Marshal, if you've got any interest in this game, please go and support that expansion. It's got a goal of $1,500. He's not shooting for the moon here. He just wants to get something out here, Ian Brody, to support this game. Don't let the theme put you off if you think war games too complicated, too deep, going to take forever. It does not take forever. It takes less than an hour and a half, even with six players. Go listen to me wax lyrical about it in our last episode fantastic quartermaster general sean yeah just to basically recap ronan on what we said in the last episode i'm a fan of this game i really like it i love the thematic way that each power plays out i love the interaction between the players i love that it does play quite quickly as a six player game as quite correctly mentioned plays quicker as a six than a two i just have that one nagging doubt and that's the question of replayability. I yet to see different strategies come, but you've assured me that they're out there and that it's going to happen. So I live in hope. That's my thoughts on Quartermaster General. And my number three is Machina Arcana. Uh, this was self-published, but came through Mage woo, Company. Woo, warning! Warning! <laughs> Well, it came through Mage Company, who we've mentioned in the podcast already, so we've got to be quite nice to them. <laughs> uh, and they're fantastic competition, win a copy of Hoyuk. <laughs> and designed by Juraj Bilic, and it's a 1-4 player dungeon crawler, but this one's slightly different. It's driven by a very strong narrative. I suppose if you looked at the theming of it, it's a cross between Lovecraft and Steampunk. Two subjects that Ronan absolutely loves to see in board games. Why is it on my top five of the of the releases from this year? Well, as well as looking amazing, it really does look absolutely stunning. It's one of the best looking games I own. The dungeon crawling aspect plays really well. Everything works. Everything does as it should be. It's not bringing anything massively new to the table. But it's an exciting game that has a nice arc to it. The end of level bosses provide the, the right level of resistance. It's not too hard. It's not too easy. It's doable, but you have to really work together or think about what you're doing. On top of that, it's the story that sort of really drags you into this game. Every mission you do has a story. Uh, your, your characters are upgrading. Their storylines are changing as you go through the game. And that's what gets you invested in this one. It's not quite RPG levels, but it's along that way. And we know that I love Pathfinder because it brings that role-playing aspect to the game. So that was my number three choice. 
Ronan? I'm completely in the dark about this. We haven't played this together. No, we haven't. I will say, first-time designer, self-published, minis, steampunk, Cthulhu. <laughs> it sounds like someone's put together a recipe for awful, awful game. But you're telling me not, and actually it's got really high ratings. Not that many ratings on BGG, but really high ratings. So, okay, much like I guess I talked about Patch History earlier, maybe this is the one in a thousand that comes out and is actually a good game. What makes this different to all the other Kickstarter, Cthulhu, Steambunk, Plastic Miniature, or Modular Board, RPG-like, Roll Dice games? <laughs> I think the simple answer is that it works. It all comes together. Which puts it ahead of 90% of them. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it, it does, as I said, it does all come together. It's just not a flurry of ideas thrown at a board game. Whereas you do tend to find sometimes in these Kickstarter games, all these minis, it's maybe a good mechanism here, matched with a little bit of a nice story there. But maybe when you put the two of them together, they don't necessarily work or the mechanisms don't link together. This one, they've not really reached for the moon in terms of the gameplay. They've kept the gameplay fairly simple. The monster movements and what they do is fairly simple. Combat isn't a massive problem. But it's the story arc and the look of the game, I suppose, that just sets it above. It looks absolutely beautiful. You're invested already when you start reading the biographies of the characters that you're using. And it continues in that vein. And very much the story drives you along and makes you care about these characters that you're sending through the dungeon. So maybe with a, a raven laughed or something like that, which I love, but it's a generic dwarf or a generic elf... You're not that fast if you sacrifice them for the greater good. But in this game, you're thinking, oh, I kind of want to survive to get to the next level with this character sort of thing. I want to see how the story continues. So I think that's where it probably just sticks its nose above the crowd, Ronan. So we did a preview of this, Sean. And one of the things we talked about was the arc of it and the fact that that threat goes up and the horror level goes up and the game becomes more difficult and, and there is sort of a natural progression to it. How does that work? does i think um at the time we probably mentioned or i probably mentioned more likely that kind of similar to arkham horror in that there's the threat level and everything gets a little bit more intense the closer you get to doing things and it works very very similar and probably actually a little bit better it just becomes a lot harder more things spawn as that threat level goes up harder monsters are going to come out and it does feel like you are getting deeper and deeper into this sort of doom-laden dungeon or whatever it is inside of a mountain. I, I think the arc it just works very well and it's just enough. It's not too much. It doesn't all of a sudden a button clicks or you go up from levels 2 to 3 and all of a sudden you can't win the game. Because it's just you get hit by a thousand monsters or an unbeatable behemoth. It's judged nicely. Cool. Well... I'm hopeful to give it a go. I'm sure we're going to sit down at some point and go through it. And maybe if we ever talk about it again, I'll know a bit more. Cool. Moving on, my number two choice, published in 2014, is a game I would talked about, so we won't labour the point. It is Aquasphere, from Stefan Feld, published by Hall Games. What I think Stefan Feld does best in his games is create a puzzle in which you don't have enough time and resources to do everything you want to do to solve that puzzle. And I think it's exactly what he's done here with Aquasphere. You know what you're trying to do. You know you're not going to be able to do all of it, and therefore you're prioritizing according to 
the opportunities that come available to you, the upgrades you can get hold of, what other players are doing within the research system and within the research station under the sea and taking and leaving for you and how you can do it most efficiently as per you know a decent euro. The theme of the game is that you control two technicians. One is programming robots, the other one's a scientist underneath the water. And the robots programmed by the programmer are going to allow scientists to take certain actions. You play it over four rounds and you score points like you know, Feldian sort of way. Very different things you do by bringing submarines into play, by clearing octopuses which are blocking up the filters, by collecting these mysterious black crystals which you need to score and, and which is the focus of the theme of the game that you're attempting to research them, by upgrading your, your own private little lab. So <clears throat> various ways in which you, you play against them. That theme now it's not massively tied in. It's not Machine Arcana, but it's enough there to tie together the various mechanisms in the game, and there are plenty of them, and make them make sense and give it a decent narrative and not be as loose as Summerfell's other attempts. It's also not solitaire because everyone's sharing that research station because resources around the place are limited because there's only certain opportunities available to you. You do have to watch what everyone else is doing. You have to see what actions they're programming. You have to see if they're likely to nip ahead of you and take what you were planning to take, grab the time you're after or grab the crystals or, or just do anything that you were planning to do yourself and react to what they're programming because they have to program before they can do the action so you have some idea of what's going on it's probably my favorite Stefan fell game in a few years maybe since luna came out some of his games in that intervening time i've enjoyed quite a lot others i haven't been that big a fan of but this one i really hit the sweet spot of frustrating tough tight but enjoyable I have a headache after a game of it but it's a good headache and it hasn't gone on for too long and that is Aquasphere my number two choice in 2014 Sean? Ronan I've just got to concur with pretty much everything you said it was just outside my top five really strong game lots of avenues to explore in it I don't think we've explored all of them yet loads of ways to go Lots of longevity in the random tiles that come out and the different things that you're going to be able to do in each game. Yeah, really strong game, typical felt game, victory point salad, but as we said in our review of this, victory point salad that actually makes sense. You understand why you're getting those points. It's not just random points that are thrown at you. So, yeah, really strong choice and uh, a worthy number two on your list, I think. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Your number two, Sean? My number two is Alchemist from Czech Games Edition by Mateusz Kotry, and it's a 2-4 deduction worker placement game. Some people may have noticed that in my Essen Top 5, the Ancient World was number one, it's dropped to number five now in this list, and Alchemists was nowhere to be seen. We did mention an Essen Roundup, and it was fairly well received. It hadn't clicked with me then. The first game I played with this, it just really... Whoa. Like, what happened there? I don't know what was going on. Was it a puzzle? Was it... Was it a, a, you were a worker placement game? What was it? I just, It really didn't click, but it made me think about it. It made me continue to think and think, God, what if I did that? What if that happened? Eventually, played it again and just... It clicked. I loved it. So what is it? Well, it's a game where you are an alchemist, believe it or not, and you are trying to decipher what makes up the ingredients of the potions you're making. So you've got to work out the construction of them. You've got to 
make potions to sell to make money and that's the euro side of it and you've got to sell your theories you can even bluff in this game as to what your theories are not very good description i know there's a lot going on on this one and one we'll probably have to look at in a proper review but the reason i like this game it really does keep you on your toes it's a simple deduction puzzle on one side of it but i think the heart of this game is in the worker placement and more importantly the bluffing i think if you play it as the worker placement and the bluffing side of it and just obviously do your best with the deduction puzzle that's where this game lives i do have my longevity concern for it but for now it's very much one of my favorite games also it's one of the first games, if not the first game, that I've ever played that's introduced app technology. I think it's done it really well. You forget you're even using the app by the end, and for that I applaud them. So there's my number two choice, Ronan. Oh, Sean. Yeah, that moment you had where you clicked and you thought it was a good game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't had that moment. I was really looking forward to Alchemist. I really like a deduction game. I really like a worker placement game. The app got me excited. I can't believe you just said you forget using the app. The app is the best part of it. The fact that you can take photos and it knows what you're doing. Exciting. I have not played this as much as Sean. So I am fully willing to accept that possibly with more experience, I may get more enjoyment out of it. But it really seemed limited as a worker placement game. It seemed almost obvious where to go with your workers on most turns. I didn't feel like I was doing much deduction. I was putting together things, it was giving me answers, I was then eliminating possibilities. That's not deduction, that's just eliminating possibilities. It's not using two bits of information and using my brain to find a third bit of information. It's just crossing off things that you know aren't true. Again, this could be my limitation. I don't know why other people show you the results of their experiments when you don't know what they've put into the experiments. I'm not sure how useful that can possibly be to you. You can maybe card count. But that seems like a step way too far because you have some idea of what cards they have, but you don't know everything they have. What you do is you put two ingredients together and you get an aspect that they share. And that can help you work out, because there are a limited number of aspects, what other ingredients share with each other. You're trying to work out what ingredients make what potions. But I felt like I knew everything or nothing. There was no deduction. There's no grey area. There was, I know that or I don't know that. I know there's a card in there that lets you see one of the cards that someone else has puts into their potions, which seems immensely overpowered. And when I've been discussing the game with people, they've been saying that is just a big problem because it's such an advantage. So I'm not sure it's been balanced that well. I felt when I was playing it, I didn't have that many options. By the end of the game, I had worked out everything to do with the potions, but I didn't have any actions left to do anything with that knowledge. And I couldn't see a way of having done that more quickly because I had the minimum number of experiments I needed to do to work this information out. I admit I don't know how you bluff with pretending that you know certain things because until you've done a certain number of experiments, I don't believe you that you know certain things. You're just taking a punt and then whether I go with you or not it seems a bit weird. It's, there's not that flexibility. It's, it's not possible to find out lots in a short space of time and sort of crack on a magic code. You put two things together, there's a result. So... I was really disappointed and underwhelmed. I am willing to give it more goes. I hope I get to the point that Sean did where it clicks over and it becomes an enjoyable game. But it's got a long way to go at this stage. I understand your concern. Pretty much the concerns I had before it did sort of click in. And I think that's why I thought the bluffing was 
so integral. The earlier you start bluffing, I feel that other people have then got to almost go along with you and either challenge you or go along and start bluffing themselves because the earlier you bluff, the earlier you get theories in, into place, the more points you're going to score and the less points you're going to lose and the more bonuses you, you're going to get. So you're right, it's not a deduction puzzle, it's just a puzzle where you're just eliminating information and getting to the correct answer. But that was the least part of the game for me. That was the most ineffective part of the game. It needs to be there to make the game work, because otherwise you're not gathering the information. But I just felt that you need to utilise uh, selling potions to the adventurer. I think that's an interesting mechanic that maybe I haven't used as much as I, I could have done. The picking up of the cards in the middle just give the little bonuses. I think there's things to explore that maybe not obvious on your first couple of goes but I, I take on board what you're saying and you know what maybe i'll go get back round to that point at the moment i'm enjoying it and obviously so it's my number two choice i just okay quickly on alchemist right it makes a bad impression with a lot of people which i think might just hold the game back because i had a bad first game of it. you had a bad first game of it probably i had a bad first game of it there are other people i've talked to had a bad first game of it it needs to get a lot of buzz from people saying stick with it for people to forge through there. And there's going to be lots of people fall by the wayside and go, do you know what, those other games I know are good. I don't need to keep on plugging away at this to suddenly understand that it is a good game. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, that is a, that's a fair comment on it, to be fair oh, to you. So move on to your number you. one. Now, no, we <laughs> <laughs> you had a okay. nice comment from you for once. <laughs> My number one release for 2014, again, it's another game we talked about previously, it's Lords of Zidit from Regis Bonasay and published by Libelud. It's based on the previous release of Himalaya. It's been given a fantasy re-theme. It's about you programming six actions in which you move your character around a board which contains a number of cities and you move along certain paths. There are three paths from each area and whichever colour that you choose, you move along that path and you move to the next city and you may do actions at that city. The city is either going to contain troops and you can choose to pick up troops and add them to behind your screen. You have like a, a body of men and women willing to go out and fight for you. Or there may be monsters or titans in the city that you arrive. And if you have the correct combination of troops, you'll be able to defeat that monster or titan, which will give you two of three different types of rewards. And the three different types of rewards are gold and fame and mage towers which you can build in some of these cities the whole kind of trick to the game is at the end of it in the three scoring they're laid out in a random order at the beginning of the game and for the first one whoever's last is out of the game so if gold is the first scoring criteria and you have the least gold you're out of the game no matter how well you did in the other two and it goes for that depending on player count a number of people get kicked out and you have to not be last or possibly second last if you have a higher player count in each of the categories Otherwise, you're kicked out and you can't win. And that really is one of the cruxes of why it's such an interesting game. The pre-programmed movement really makes it fun. It keeps the game ticking along really quickly. The fact that it's interactive, that you have to try and guess where players are going to go or estimate where players are going to go. Are they going to beat you to the punch? Do you want them to beat you to the punch? Are you going to pause and wait so they pick up a less effective troop and you take the one from the next class up because there are four different types of troops and they have different effects and they've got different scarcity values? Just think that as a relatively quick, like hour and a half, possibly two hour game for five players in which there's very little downtime. The theme works. It's highly interactive. The scoring is really interesting. Some of the scoring is hidden. Some of it isn't. 
So there's that kind of bluff element to it. I just enjoyed this a lot. It's got beautiful components. It's really well made. Everything makes sense. And, you know, it sounds like a lot of other games out there, but I just happen to have a lot more fun playing this game than I have other games this year. Cool. I haven't managed to actually play this one, Roland, as you know. I've seen it being played, and it looks great. There's loads in the box, but I've got a question about the number of players. What is the right number of player? And I know that in a three-player game, there's a dummy player. Does that actually work? Well, actually, yes, three to five players, okay? And they have done a fantastic job in supporting three players. There is a whole different set of components for three players. There's a different number of rounds. There is that dummy player who goes along and does stuff who... They're a consideration... They're worth keeping on. I think if you lose to them, you've done something wrong. It definitely works best with five, though. Having the five human players and the unpredictability of human players and the sort of banter, because it is all about that, about messing up your pre-programmed actions, realising you screwed up, you know, despairing, trying to work your way out of it, only to make a silly mistake or someone hasn't done something you expected them to do. That whole human interaction is, is really the key to this. So I probably wouldn't bother playing it three player i'd play it four player and when i got five i look to play it i think that's definitely what's best brilliant stuff okay so lastly and ronan i'm warning you be nice about this one is my number one choice it's dead of winter from plaid hat games designed by jonathan gilmore and isaac vega this is a two to five player co-op zombie game with some deduction and traitor mechanisms thrown in for good measure so what it is you play a survivor or a couple of survivors in a sort of post-apocalyptic world where the dead are roaming the streets and you are placed in a colony with the other survivors and you've basically got to survive you will have a quest that needs to be achieved and you will have your own objectives there is also the potential for a traitor in the midst here. This is one of the things that I like about the game. Just the potential of a traitor and the fact that you've got your own objectives. And these might not necessarily be aimed towards the goal of the game. So it might look like you're the traitor because you're acting against the goal of the game and the goal of the colony. But you might not be the traitor. There might be another traitor hiding. That... So there's all of that aspect to the game. You're generally going out into the town to try and find items to help you you're keeping the zombies at bay in the colony you're finding guns and food and oil and medical kits and other survivors that you can join up on into the colony and so you you build up your your own tableau of survivors so what do i like about this game it's massively thematic the new crossroad system is this new system that Plaid Hat are pushing, and there's going to be a series of games using the crossroad game system. It's a card that you pull out before everyone's go, and if a condition should be met, then something's going to happen, there's going to be some narrative read out, and something good or bad is going to happen, there might be a vote that the colony have to make, a decision that you have to make. Love it, love the crossroad system. Love the fact that there is an insta-death. I know Ronan doesn't particularly like games where there's insta-death, but you've got two characters, and you're never out of the game. But it's a zombie thing. There's always going to be a chance of people dying. I like that's very thematic. Also, if you have an insta-death, where there are other player survivors, 
then they also have to make a decision because they have to sacrifice themselves because you've become a zombie and you are now attacking them you're biting them do they sacrifice themselves or do they take the chance that they survive or if they don't they're going to pass it on to the next person it's another interesting choice in this game there's lots of interesting choice as i said the potential for a traitor but it not being definite again really interests me and it all feeds into the theme of this game i think in the right group and i do say in the right group this is a fantastic experience if you get one or two people who are not invested in it not bothered don't like this type of game you're not going to have the enjoyment because everybody has to be game on focused on what they're doing and enjoying this type of game if you're willing to give this a go and dive in the game i believe will reward you with a fantastic group experience be nice ronan okay let's start off i am not going to give this game a slate in i don't know what you're that worried about there is lots good in this game there are lots of interesting decisions to make there is some good group interaction there are the constant crises which means that you are having to adapt to what's going on around you that you certainly realize how scarce that goods are going to become there is the possibility here for really great great gaming experiences the crossroads cards provide when they trigger in the right time right place genuine difficult decisions a robin peter to pay paul corpse to rock and hard place all those sort of things whereby oh which do i do do i take that risk for that because it could be a good reward or do i play it safe but even playing it safe is pretty bad the problem is as with i think every single plaid hat game i've ever played barring summoner wars the game is fragile now where that level of fragility is i don't know because I haven't played it multiple times, but it is easy to can this game. It is easy for it not to work. If crossroads don't trigger, as Sean said, if everyone isn't completely invested in it, the traitor mechanism is really fragile and can go horribly wrong. I think whoever's playing as the traitor really needs to know the game quite well to be able to do it effectively. It seems like a very, very difficult game to be the traitor in. And the one time we have played with the traitor, I pegged onto him really quickly, and he's not a million miles from here, and you may have just heard him talking about this game. Yet, after warning of the fragility, I think it will give you some gaming experiences that are better than some really good games can give you. I will go back to Dungeon Run from Pad Hat, which we talked about a couple of years ago nearly now that I had some great games of that where everyone was laughing and enjoying themselves and invested and chuckling. And even with the same game group, having a bad game of it, this can happen with Dead of Winter. I don't know. It's like it happened with City of Remnants. It happened with Mice and Mystics. It seems to be a recurring issue. Maybe this is the type of game that Plaid Hat are, are just willing to make. A risky, put-it-out-there game whereby it's not going to work every time, but it can hit certain highs and certain lows. They're like the flair player of publishers at the moment. Can be great, can be rubbish. Are there games a luxury that your collection can sustain? Am I always going to be willing to commit three hours to playing Dead of Winter, knowing that it might fall flat or it might be awesome? Sometimes I will. And depending upon what the ratio of awesome to rubbish is, is where I'm going to judge the game. 
I don't expect this game to be perfect every time, but it has to hit a fairly decent strike rate for me to rate it as a good game. No matter how high the highs are, if the lows come too often, then I can't say that it's genuinely a good game. So huge potential, possibly great, possibly awful. One of those games I'm going to be completely swinging about until I've played it a few more times and make a final judgment on it. But you said one thing where you echoed me and you said that it's fragile because it it relies on certain people and people being invested in it. I think the rest of it, I see where you're coming from, but I think it's more robust than you think it is. But I have to agree. Yeah, it's fragile in as much that people have to be invested in it. You have to. It's one of those games that there's no point playing it if you're sceptical about this type of game. You're just not going to enjoy it and you're going to ruin the game for everybody else. So in that aspect, yeah. The game we played, as you said, with the Betrayer, I think it's not so much knowing the game, it's just knowing how to play that role. You learn these things in Resistance and Werewolf and stuff like that. I think they're all good sort of training ground for playing Betrayer in this. There is a little bit more to it in this, obviously. I think it is completely dependent on the people you're playing around. But my concern there is, I'm not sure it's possible to have a good game of it first time out. If any player is having their first game. I wouldn't say that you can't have a good game. I don't think you can see the game to its full potential, is what I would say. I had a decent first game. Oh, well, I'd say you can't have a good traitor game. Oh, traitor game, sorry, yeah. That's what I was focusing on, and I think that maybe I am focusing on that because I think that's where the full potential of the game is with the traitor. Because of the conflicting goals, I think that brings in much more of a dynamic to it. I don't think you can have a good traitor game if anyone's playing their first game. Fair enough, yeah, yeah, I I can see that, yeah. In terms of the traitor doesn't know what's important, what's not important, and the other people 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 don't know, which means that they have to communicate more with the group in a slightly different way than they would if they were able to just focus by themselves on focus on doing their own goal, yeah? I understand that, yeah, I I see that. I think there's enough there, even when you're learning the game, I think there's enough around you, and as you said, those crossroads cards... You said that maybe they won't trigger very often. I actually think that 70% of them are going to trigger like on your go. It's like 30% if this player's in the game, if that player's in the game, are very specific. And they are the better ones because it's, oh, it's this guy is the school headmaster. You send him to the school and he therefore has this happens to him and he's got to make this decision. And it's all really thematic. But most of them are, is there a player in the colony? Is there a player in the town? They're quite generic in terms of they're not as specific as there are certain players. So I think they will trigger more often than not. And I think that the game in general is more robust than previous Plat Hat games. I could be proved wrong. There's a long road to go down with this game. And as we both know, we're both terrified of Plat Hat games because they build up hope so much and can leave you quite disappointed. But that is my number one choice and a game that I am currently absolutely loving. It's Dead of Winter. And that is our top five of 2014. So the next person to join us on our big review of 2014 is another one of our roving reporters from Essen. He's been on a few times. It is our friend Nathan. Hello, Ronan. Hello, Sean. Hey, Nathan. How are you? I am well, thank you. I am well. You're sounding hearty today. 
<laughs> I am very hearty. I had a whole lot of heart earlier for breakfast, and it's uh, keeping me going. That's not a pleasant thought either at all. Well, at least you're well fed. Yeah, exactly. Is that some kind of underhanded insult? <laughs> oh yeah, hang on a minute. I heard, <laughs> I heard that one earlier. Ah. Another well fed gamer. Okay, <laughs> moving on from insulting Nathan, because we've had plenty of that this show. Nathan, let's get some of that heartiness out of you and drag you down a bit. What game were you most looking forward to in 2014 that did not live up to your expectations? I am going to have to say Subdivision this year by Bezier Games. I was really looking forward to it because I really like Suburbia, and Subdivision looked kind of the same, you know? City stuff, hexagons... Bezier games, and then we tried it out, and it was completely different. Um, it didn't feel like building a city at all, or even building your subdivision of a city. It just felt a bit like put stuff on a board and score some points. It was very abstract, and we were just basically bored with it by the end of it. It's not interactive at all, and yeah, I was just like, oh, that's kind of lame. And it was just a big letdown, and probably uh, because I was looking forward to it so much. Maybe if I tried it without any expectations, it wouldn't be that bad. Okay, so uh, apart from the werewolf line, which they adapted from from an old set of games, for Bezier Games, this is the first time they branched out from Ted Elspach design games. What about Subdivision was lacking that they had in their other releases and made them such big successes, like Suburbia and Castles of Mac and Ludwig, which I believe you like both of those? Yeah, I think it is the interaction. Uh, now, uh, I know some people will be like, maybe take issue with Suburbia or Castles of Mac and Ludwig, saying they're not that interactive. But you do look at other people's cities or castles. You're seeing what other people are doing. And I think when we tried Subdivision the first time, we finished the game. And that was the first time I looked over to see what the other players had done. And I was just like, oh, okay. I really, really wasn't engaging with anyone else. And we played it pretty much in silence, other than asking for rules clarifications. And so it was just a bit too, a bit too, Multiplayer solitaire, I guess, is the buzzword. Yeah, Nathan, I, I've actually I've got a subdivision after falling in love with Suburbia fairly recently, and uh, I know it wasn't a tell, Ted Alspach design, but it just seemed like to me it was more of the same kind of thing. So apart from the interaction, what didn't work for you? I think it was also that you know that the buildings aren't that different. There's only a certain amount of buildings you can have they're quite they're all generic you know it's either a sort of a, a school or a, a road or you know i can't remember all of them off the top of my head but in suburbia you know which is obviously the whole point is that they're quite similar each tile has a bit of a personality you know you're like oh this this is an office block the special power relates to how you think an office block might work um, and we'll give bonuses out for that and so i did find all of the individual tiles in suburbia, their special powers actually sort of felt right and felt thematic, whereas subdivision, they were all just kind of samey. It was almost like, you know, purple tile does this, green tile does that. And uh, it felt massively abstract uh, compared to suburbia. Okay. Well, let's try and push onwards and upwards. Let's get you on something that you liked. And in this case, what was your favourite expansion published in 2014? So, not to sound really boring uh, and put the same answer as Terry but I have to put Clash of Cultures Civilizations as my favourite expansion I loved it compared to any of the other expansions that I played like it was it was so good compared to any other ones and I just really enjoyed 
I enjoyed Clash of Cultures and Civilizations. I didn't realise until I played it, but I feel like Clash of Cultures wasn't quite complete for me. And then I played Clash of Cultures, and I'm like, this is a perfect game. Sorry, I'll just change it up from what I asked Terry. Player interaction in Clash of Cultures basically relied very heavily on the combat and getting involved. Has the expansion enhanced that in subtle ways to interact with the other players better? Uh, it has, actually. They, um, so one of the things that I never really did with the base game was make use of uh, the sort of trade routes and the various trading powers. Also, I don't think you can actually trade stuff between players. So you can swap things voluntarily, and then trade routes allow you to gain resources from other players by being near them and sort of trading with them. And I never really did any of that. But some of the civilizations have enhanced trading things. Uh, I think last time we played Terry was, I think she mentioned she was Vikings, and they would use their trade routes to actually steal from players, and so you would be losing things. And so it became there was also an element of economic warfare, and so there's a lot more interaction based on that, and I found that I was doing more things or building other things because of what other players were doing. It wasn't just sending troops in and fighting. Um, there's a lot of different things to take into account. Yeah, I, I, it does give you sort of bonuses for exploring the different areas of of the game. Although it does generally end up in a big mash of plastic get thrown at each other towards the end rounds. You're trying to steal bits of cities, which you don't want to take away the clash, the clash of cultures. That's one of the big sort of fun areas to it. And Nathan going mental and attacking everyone and wondering why he keeps losing. Anyway, John. <laughs> so moving on. What was the best game that you played this year that wasn't published? In 2014. I came late to the game, but I've played for the first time uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Whoop, whoop. I got it for Christmas, uh, last Christmas, and so started playing it in the new year and absolutely loved it. That's because it's a great game. It is a great game. Go on, tell us all about Sentinels of the Multiverse. Okay, so it is a comic book style cooperative game, and so you, you're basically you take a superhero each. The game, you'll pick a bad guy. And then you're just playing cards to try and hurt the bad guy. The bad guy, when it's his turn, he'll do damage on you. And it's just generally simulates the superhero brawl at the end of each superhero film or comic, um, where it's just like a big showdown and everyone's just beating on each other and doing crazy special powers and uh, you know throwing buses at each other and things like that. And it is just a lot of fun. And I find it a massively simple game because you just play a card, activate a power, you know, see what other things happen that are written on the cards, and then you move on to the next person. And hopefully, some of you will survive. So, when you describe Sentinels of the Multiverse to new players, it's got a long list of features which make it sound completely unappealing. It's fiddly, there's loads of different card combos, the artwork is not the best, some people like it, some people don't. There are endless expansions to it, there's a homebrewed intellectual property, so it hasn't got a big name license to it. How does it overcome these unpromising factors, which if you described 100 games with those in them, 99 of them wouldn't work? What's the magic behind Sentinels of the Multiverse? Uh, I think the magic is, it's awesome, but if I was going to break it down and give you something a bit, a bit more specific, I would say, looking at the different things, it is fiddly, but with new players, I'll just do all the upkeep, and so I'll take care of all the different things that happen, and so they don't have to worry about all of the, you know, is it extra damage, extra things like this. You just remind people as you go through and say, I'll talk you through it. You know, talk them through every stage of each play as it's going and say, you can do this. What do you wish to do? You can do this. What do you wish to do? 
you know, and just let them go and then say, you know, you make the decision, it's your choice. And so you can just talk people through the stages quite easily and walk them through it. So if you've got an experienced player, then it's okay. I actually, I really like the artwork. Uh, so I, I'm surprised that that's even a thing, actually. I've not heard that at all. I think the artwork is fantastic and I very simplistic. Like really? No, and I'm, I really, but, can I just jump in quickly? I don't yeah. get it. I don't get the love for Sentinels. I, I think it's fine. It's, it's, it's all right. It's decent. But I just don't understand this. The people who, like yourselves, are, and obviously Ronan, that just go absolutely bonkers over it. I just don't understand it. It, it, it baffles me. It's because it's, it's story-based. And so you're playing all the cards and you, it's like you're acting out. It's like you're in a comic book for an hour. But Nathan, does it not just... Yeah. It feels to me that it's kind of prescriptive. You, you're always going to play the most effective card and it's always obvious what the most oh, effective card is. You're crazy! Uh, it's not always obvious. Also, I'm a massive loose cannon. I'll just be like, heck yeah, I'll try this. I've got to <laughs> It's like a bunch of superheroes standing around saying, if only we had super strength. Hulk, what do you think we should do? <laughs> <laughs> that's no, no, listen, that's complete rubbish because the, the, it's not, it's, best, it's every it, experience I've, I've had of that game, it's always been obvious what I should no, do. No, because you playing it with your head down, just reading your cards, and you play it and I, you. It's what you do when you first start learning the game is you go in on yourself. That's why you play games economically. I'm going to analyse you now because you do you, you learn the rules yourself and you play and you get your own. But I've played four up. or five games of this and very. But you were always than... just doing your own cards. You just what what's best? What gets the most damage out this turn for me? Not if I deal with that, you deal with that. Nathan, you stop an environment card coming out. Okay, this you got yeah. And what's the new threat that's come out? And how can we deal with that together? What cards are we going to do? What powers can we trigger from each other? No, no, and I it's get that, that interaction between each other. I, I disagree. I think I've got to the point. Yeah, you're right. When I first, the first couple of times I played it, I, I was very head down, and actually, I actually liked the game more. But when I lifted my head up and we started doing that, we, we you have the table discussion. I'm not saying it's a bad game. I just don't get the fascination with it. That's all. I, I like it. I've always enjoyed the games I've played of it, but I just don't get the fascination. Once you decide amongst yourself, well, we've got to stop this, 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 and this. This is our priority. Then you know exactly what you've got to play. But once the groups decide that's our priority, then I, if I've got a card that can stop it, I'm going to hold my hand up and say, I've got a card that can stop it. There's, there's not that much decision to be made. But the problem is, uh, with that, well, not the problem, the good thing is, it's like all, you know, comic book showdowns, crazy stuff will happen that will put yeah, all those plans, yeah, and, uh, plans apart. And so yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I'll do this, this, and this. Easy. You turn over an environment card. Oh wait, there's been some sort of cosmic warp and you're all naked and you have no weapons. What are you going to do? Um, I don't think that's actually a card, but you know. It's like, <laughs> it's just, I'm actually writing it out with Byron. Right <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, I get what you're saying. It's my homebrew deck. No, I'm... Um, <laughs> But they've, you know, they they have all these things that can go wrong, and and I just feel like, yeah, I think if you're in the spirit of the game, having fun with it, yeah, then I, I it doesn't matter if stuff, yeah. stuff might look, you know, it might be an obvious move, but you're just like, oh, phew, I'm glad that card came up, and I can actually take yeah. it down. And also, I think as as a caveat to what I was saying earlier, I always tend to play with the tank, and the tanks don't have a lot of variety, so I'm not playing with like the electro guy or the 
or are some of the other ones that probably. You're well in the stuff. theme there, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he likes to play as bunker or hacker. <laughs> <laughs> bunker, never bunker, that's the tempest. And, and that's the thing, like, if you put bunker in there, then you are like you are waiting for those cards that do a massive amount of damage based yeah. on all the. Yeah, you know, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see that, and there is probably. It's a flawed argument in that in that sense, but I'm yet I'm yet to have that magical game where I think, wow, that was great. Nathan, I wanted him to like the game so much, I gave him a whole copy of the game. Oh, <laughs> what a way! I bought the enhanced one and I gave him my original version. Go, Come on, play it! You've got to like it. And it's not work. <laughs> As a shame, but I I do love it, and I think one of the other things you mentioned was endless expansions. The expansions you can take it or leave it. If you like it and you want more characters, then you're you're not going to be bothered about buying them anyway. And they're they're not too expensive to be honest. It just adds variety. But even with the base game, you have plenty of bad guys, plenty of good guys to mix and match for a long time. The last thing I say is the app that's out for uh, Android devices and iOS devices is the whole game. It's fantastic. It's really, really good. You can play it slowly to learn the app and then play it quickly. We don't often talk about apps on on, on this because I don't play often board game apps, but the Sentinels Multiverse one is brilliant. And over the course of the next 12 months, they're releasing all of the expansions in, in the e-version. Really? So you don't need the cards anymore? No. Okay, moving on from Sentinels and Multiverse, Roland. Just because it's a fantastic one. game. Anyway, <laughs> on to another really good game. Good choice. Which game had you not played for a while, Nathan, but made a comeback out of the dust this year? Okay, Kemet is my choice for this. And there is a reason that I had not played it for a long time, and that was because I didn't own it. <laughs> and it was always out of stock when it was birthdays or Christmas. And then at Essen, I saw a copy, and I was like, I'll take that. And so now I've played it quite a few times since this year. And it's just a game that I really enjoyed the first couple of times I played it. But availability was a problem. There weren't that many people that had it. And I didn't always have the opportunity to, you know, find someone who had it that I could play it with. I know you've got it, Ronan. I've played your copy a few times. But, yeah, now I've got my own. I can play it all the time, whenever I want. And it's been getting a, a lot of love since uh, since I got it for uh, S. So... Nathan, I remember the big smile on your face when I asked you what you'd picked up when we met in Essen, and you, the first thing you said was, I've got finally got Kemet, so <laughs> I knew it was a bit special to you, but the game is absolutely stunning to look at. Do you think if it had less chrome, would you have noticed it at all, basically? How much of the fun comes from these high production values in the game? I don't... I've been thinking about this, and I'm not entirely sure that the game is more fun because of the nice pieces. but I th- And I don't think I necessarily like it because of those nice pieces, which they are very nice. But I do think that you would maybe notice if they didn't have them there, if they were like tokens or cubes or something. Like, it, it, does, it does make a difference. It becomes a, more like a miniature skirmish game rather than a board game. And so I do think it does help you get into it. But... Um, I think, and I think it would, it would be a bit of an absence if it, it didn't have all the nice uh, miniatures in there, or if the, you know, the, like the, even the pyramids, like the little, little four-sided dice. I mean, they, they do look good, and it could all be done with sort of just tokens or, or bits of cardboard. I think it would, I think it would lose something. Um, I think, yeah, I think it definitely elevates it above sort of. Uh, Again, yeah. just doesn't look good. It is fun to play with them. You do want to, like, you know, when you lose cannon moves, just get a monster, whether it's good or not. You just want yeah. to have them. 
Yeah, and they look awesome. And yeah, mine good. even came with silk bags for all of the armies. Cool. I got it. Check you out. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Good choice. Kemet is a really fun game. It's definitely worth giving a go. It blends Euro and Ameritrash in a very unique kind of a way. And it blends together with Psychotes. That is just fantastic. I, I concur. Very good choice. So, Nathan, what was your favourite game published in 2014? This has to go to Star Wars Imperial Assault. I got it for Christmas and have been playing a campaign regularly since then, uh, on and off, and I've just been enjoying it enjoying it immensely. I think for people that are not aware of it, it is a, a campaign-based sort of mission game, and you're a group of rebel saboteurs who are going to go in and uh, try and take down the Imperials and have various things that you need to do on these missions, maybe stealing some information or helping prisoners escape, and, uh, and one person plays the Imperials, and they just send wave after wave of stormtroopers and officers and you know mercenaries and bounty hunters at them to try and uh, wipe them out and it's a it's a lot of fun so nathan yeah. star wars imperial assault is just descent with poo poo noises discuss it is descent with pew pew noises and also noises too that's my answer to that it has lightsabers as well as lasers um, it's also, I've only played Descent once, and I really enjoyed it, but the Imperial Assault I've been playing with my friend Joe, who played Descent loads, like, had, has all the expansions, played several campaigns of it, and going from what he says, they have actually improved the rules and streamlined them a little bit, and I feel that they made an excellent fit with Star Wars, but I'm a bit of a Star Wars nut, so maybe I would think that about everything, I'm not quite sure. But I feel that it's a really good fit. It feels good, like, sending your hordes of stormtroopers against these sort of rebels. Who, and inevitably, you might be able to wound some of the rebel heroes, but your stormtroopers are just going to get chewed out all the time, and uh, and they, they don't do so well. And it, it has a lot of theme. The characters, there, they do the things that you would expect them to do. Some of them are sort of monsters, and they'll just go and they, you know will attack the people like a wild creature would. Others, you've got your stormtroopers that will go in in a squad. You've got your probe droids that you can use to shoot people and then maybe get up close and self-destruct. It's all it's all good fun. Okay. Uh, so, Nathan, I think for me, I think I, we keep talking about Descent, and that's probably the reason I haven't sort of taken the plunge with this one for me, is that I haven't really explored Descent hardly at all, and... Again, there's another game out being kickstarted at the moment as we record, and I'm so far ignoring Conan on Kickstarter, and hopefully, depending when you listen to it, I have ignored it and I haven't spent all the money on the nice figurines and stuff. But for the same reason, I need to play Descent rather than just buying loads and loads of these campaign games and just never getting them played. But I suppose it just it comes down to the theming and what you what you like and what you don't like. I think so, and I I had I've played Descent. But I always, I know people that have it, so I never bought it. And so I bought, you know, the Star Wars version made sense in every way. I'm looking forward to the next mission. You know what's coming up. I'm already in my mind. Because I'm playing as the Imperial player, I know a lot of the story, um, what sort of things might happen to the Rebels. So I'm just like constantly thinking about all these booby traps that I've laid for them and that I can, uh, can do to, make, to ruin their day and, uh, and kill those Rebel scum. 
And it's quite fun. <laughs> okay. So, as well as enjoying your ongoing campaign of Souls Imperial Assault, what other game are you most looking forward to in 2015, which may or may not be Star Wars related? <laughs> I know, it looks really bad. It's Star Wars Armada. Um, no! Which is, shock! Which is the... Potentially, it's going to be the bigger brother to Star Wars X-Wing. And so, instead of it being the small small fighters flying around shooting each other or the Red Falcon, it's going to be Star Destroyers and cruisers blowing each other up, um, moving them around on the table. And it just looks awesome. I mean, it's a Star Destroyer in a box. So Let me, let me repeat that for dramatic effect. <laughs> it's a Star Destroyer in a box. So you mentioned X-Wing and it being the bigger brother there, Nathan. And much of the appeal of X-Wing was basically down to the fast, frantic and, most importantly, simple nature of the gameplay. Are they going to be able to capture this fun in the new setting or is it going to have to kind of reach for a different audience? I'm I'm also very curious about that myself. I find with X-Wing... Although you just have maybe a couple of ships each, it still can take quite a long time. And I'm not really big on playing it um, very competitively with the, you know, exactly the sort of the squads that you can build and make sure they win. I'm more of just, uh, I like X-Wings, I like B-Wings, I like A-Wings. Let's just play with some and shoot each other up. I think this one, it it will have, it might be that you can do sort of a bit of both. Play it very strategically or play it just let's just get some big ships and shoot at each other because looking at the rules there are a lot of a lot of bits and a lot of moving parts to it um and i guess you know you'll have to be taking into account the, the shields and the weapon systems and they'll have upgrades and you also have the smaller fighter squadrons that you can sort of send out and i think it might be a bit like you can you know you can make as much out of it as you want or you can have it a bit simpler maybe and just have the capital ships and and try and uh, try and shoot each other up, but it does look quite interesting. And I think if you only got one big ship rather than lots of small ships, it might go a bit quicker. Yeah, I guess we'll wait and see. With these games, um, with Wings of Glory and X Wing, and then with Sails of Glory, I felt like the move to Sails of Glory was a move to something a bit deeper, a bit slower, and with a lot more going on. As a personal choice. I didn't enjoy it as much as the quicker fly around pew pew games. I thought they were more fun. I felt like in terms of sales of glory, you had to play it more, get into it, get deeper into it to get anything out of the game. You didn't have the pick up and play appeal. And I'm wondering whether Star Wars and Marlins is going to go the same way, that it might be a bit of a deeper game that rewards sort of getting into it, expanding, getting deeper rules because and that's my thoughts on it and therefore it's turning me off a little bit I've just started playing X-Wing recently and I'm really enjoying it and I think I want to stick to this sort of quick like I say pick up and play nature yeah and I, 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 I'm curious to see what it will be like and I'm also curious to see what Terry's reaction will be when she comes in and finds a super star destroyer the size of a sofa bed like in the lounge one day <laughs> because I'm sure they're going to release it they're going to release it Okay, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on yet again and uh, imparting your wisdom to, to us and our listeners. Thank you very much. It's been fun to, to come along.
So we've had a thorough look back at 2014. We hope you enjoyed that. The last bit of the episode, we're just going to have a brief look forward to 2015 and just let you know a game or two that has caught our eye and we're really looking forward to trying out. Now, we haven't got a great track record of this from last time around. Hopefully, we're not going to put the kiss of death on these games. Sean, what's your most look forward to upcoming release? Brandon, I actually found it quite hard to pick one of these, but in time on a tradition, and as shallow as I am, I've gone for the bling. I've chosen Rum and Bones by Cool Mini or Not, designed by Michael Shinol, who's also done Cool Mini or Not's upcoming Zeno Shift Onslaught. It's a two to six player pirate skirmish game. It comes with the usual cool mini or not massive range of figures and characters and add-ons and everything they throw at these Kickstarter campaigns that they run. It kind of looks like Zombicide with Pirates and Zombicide with Pirates sounds like a good idea to me. I love Zombicide and I like Pirates. What could go wrong? I'm a little bit worried about the depth of the game because it seems like it's a very tight skirmish game with not a lot of space on the boards where you're attacking each other's boats with various powers for each faction. But it does look great and I've had a look at the gameplay. The gameplay seems to hold up. I suppose I'm hoping that it'll be a more condensed sort of more based on fun version of something like Dungeon Command which as we've talked about in the past is one of my favourite games so that's my choice Rum and Bones have you any thoughts on Rum and Bones Ronan? not a lot of good ones (laughs) 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 Um, I guess it's going to have lovely components it's from Call Me or Not I don't think it was as big a hit on Kickstarter as they thought it would be. Now, not being as big a hit, it was still in the top 10 board games in terms of funding for the year. It made just over $700,000. Zombicide Season 3 made almost three times more than any other game last year, with over $3 million. <laughs> Okay. And they're all um, being dwarfed by exploding kittens. Exploding kittens! <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not excited. Yeah, I didn't think you would. It's not. It's not your type of thing at all. But I've gone for the bling, and as I've put, it often happens, it could be a load of complete tosh. But we shall see. I look forward to seeing your pretty copy. Should put it that way. <laughs> I've cheated, and I come up with more than one game. I'm sorry. Ah, oh, Ronan, come on now, come on. I know the man who hates honourable mentions is going to give three honourable mentions. Three quick ones. Good here. lord. I know, I know. I'm a bad person. You are a bad, okay, bad person. Mombasa is a trading and business building game, which is going to be driven by cards. It's going to be based in Africa in the 19th century. Could be a slightly controversial theme. I'm well aware of that. There's not a lot of detail out about the, how the theme is really going to go, so I hope it's sensitively handled. However, it's from Alexander Fister. It's a big game, up to two and a half hours advertised playtime. He's the designer of Port Royal, a very clever little card game. I want to see what he can do in a wider design area. The second honorable mention goes to Craftwagon. It is 
much like Automobile for Martin Wallace, based on the beginnings of the automotive industry, this time, however, in Germany. And the reason I'm interested in that is Matthias Kramer designed Lancaster, Glenmore, Rococo, Helvetia, really interesting again titles a design i've got my eye on this again looks like it's going to be a euro over an hour playtime so my eyes on that and the last one i'm really quite excited by it's elysium from matthew dunstan and brett j gilbert cambridge-based designers they are working with asmodeus space cowboys special cowboys are now part of asmodeus but they came out with splendor 60 minute card drafting game based around an ancient greek theme with different sets of cards based on different gods, and you don't play with all the sets in any game. You pick three out, and they've actually suggested certain sets that are more attacking, more defensive, more combo, more economic, and you can kind of shape how the game plays. Looks like there's going to be lots of replayability to it. Looks fairly accessible. It's got card combos that I love. We both really enjoy Greed this year, 2014. I think Elysium is going to be a step up from that. Really excited by Elysium. I'm definitely going to be giving that a go. But my actual real choice, and I'm sorry for going on for so long, is Pandemic Legacy. I've been saying since this podcast started that the development of a campaign of games and games that build on top of each other and the ability to, to roll on is something I really look forward to. Risk Legacy was a step in the right direction, but I'm not a big fan of Risk. I am a big fan of Pandemic. I really love the base game. I, I have been playing Pandemic The Cure recently, the dice game version that Matt Leacock designed, and I really enjoyed that as an even lighter version of Pandemic. The only Pandemic game I haven't really liked is Contagion that was not designed by Matt Leacock, so it doesn't really count as far as I'm concerned. Matt Leacock's Design Genius, along with Rob Daviel's Legacy System, in which outbreaks obviously are happening around the world, and you'll be building on top of that, and you have to deal with an evolving situation. Don't know much about how it's going to work, but that is enough to get me thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly excited. I am really over the moon about this. I cannot wait to get my hands on Pandemic Legacy. That's my number one pick for 2015. Sure. Uh, just quickly first, if you can do it, I'm going to mention X-Files, the game, which is coming out very <coughs> soon. I would be divorced, if I didn't mention it, from the prolific and, in my opinion, fantastic Kevin Wilson, who's a, the great designer of Arkham Horror, Cosmic Encounter, Elder Sign. Oh, loads. He's done loads of stuff, most of which Ronan hates, apart from Elder Sign. Uh, so that's my, my little add-on mention. Talking about Pandemic Legacy, I'm not... The, thing with, the, the reason why I'm making noise about X-Files is, according to what I've seen and read, I know Tom Vassell has been talking about it, it just seems very light, very basic, and not much of a game to it, and not what we were hoping for. No, maybe not, but as I said, I'd get divorced if I didn't mention it, so there you go, there's my marriage saver thrown in. Pandemic Legacy. I'm not a big fan of the Pandemic range. Uh, it never really clicked for me. Is this just going to be the new thing that everything's just going to throw this legacy system at it? Is it just going to be like Bruges legacy? D-Day dies legacy. Is everything just going to throw this system at it? It just seems... Are they making those games? They oh, are, yeah, just... yeah. They're, Eclipse, they're going on my wish list. Eclipse legacy. Bruges, Bruges legacy. <laughs> Imagine how good Eclipse legacy would be. <laughs> there you go. We're throwing out some ideas. Yeah. Remember, you heard it here first. (laughs) Double legacy. Love letter legacy. Uh, You know that's coming. (laughs) They've done everything else with it. Okay. 
<laughs> I don't know why you get upset about Legacy. He's bringing out Seafall, which we don't know much about, and seems to be more of a generic, explorey, tradey sort of a theme. We don't know much about Seafall. I am excited by that game as well. I know that I like the Pandemic theme. I know that I love the original Pandemic. I know that Matt Leacock has got a fantastic track record when it comes to designing games. Why would I not be excited? Well, bully for you, old Bean. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> Those are the games we are most looking forward to in 2015. We've gone over 2014. Thanks for listening so far. There's a reminder about our competition coming up in not very long. And there we have it. That's our roundup of 2014. Some of the games we didn't like, a lot of the games we did like, and what we're looking forward to next year. So thank you for listening. Thank you to all our fantastic contributors for their thoughts, whether we agreed with them or not. Sometimes more interesting when not. We want to remind you about our competition. You've got the chance to win a brand new copy of Hoyuk, the civilization building tile laying game from Mage Company. They have got their Kickstarter for Hoyuk expansion Anatolia right now until February the 10th. Get on there. The question we're asking is, if you were to design a catastrophe, what would your catastrophe be and what in-game effect would it have in a civilization game? Send your answers to the game pit competition at gmail.com, the game pit competition at gmail.com. The best and funniest will be read out by us. The competition runs until the 28th of February, so get your brains working on that, but get your entries in sooner rather than later. Sean, see us out from 2014 in Grayson style. <laughs> oh, I don't think I can manage that. But we are, as ever, very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. We are... Groovy new website on its way, all linked in. You can click on a game and follow all the podcasts that have covered it. Yeah, what he said. And see a photo of us. <laughs> <laughs> don't look at the photos of us, please don't. Moving on, we are also proud members of 2d6.org along with a whole host of audio written and visual gaming goodness you can catch us on twitter and in our facebook account and you can email us for general queries or questions on the game pit podcast at gmail.com music 